0: I think that sport is one of the most magical places for people to exist. I think that sport is a vehicle for social change, and the change that happens within sports in terms of policies and acceptance and inclusion can really be a guide for the rest of the world. And we've seen it in the past, and I think that we're at a crossroads right now where how we treat inclusion in sport is going to reflect in the rest of society. When we are authentic about who we are, and it's not safe for everyone to come out, but if we are able to do that, you know, your entire world opens up and it it not just impacts you, but it impacts the people around you. And I think that's really how social change is created, you know, is, is that ripple effect. And so I am going to put myself out there and most of it is to be who I needed when I was younger.
1: That's Chris Mosier. This week... On the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, all you beautiful beings of light and love, Rich Roll, your humble and sometimes grateful host. I'm working on it. Out here on the podcast beat, welcome or welcome back. My guest today is Chris Mosier. Chris is a trailblazing Hall of Fame triathlete, a two-time national champion race walker, a six-time member of Team USA in both duathlon and triathlon, and the first openly trans man to qualify to represent the United States in international competition. Many of you may recognize Chris from his viral Nike commercial that aired during the 2016 Rio Olympics. Not only is he... The very first transgender athlete to be sponsored by Nike, he is the first known transgender athlete to compete in the Olympic trials in the gender they identify. And these are just his achievements as an athlete. He's also a very outspoken activist on LGBTQ rights. In 2015, Chris succeeded in convincing the International Olympic Committee to change their policy giving trans athletes the privilege to represent their country at the Olympic games. And in 2016, Chris compelled another IOC policy change to allow transgender athletes to take part in the Olympics without needing to have gender reassignment surgery. Chris is a super awesome guy. This is a really fun and quite enlightening discussion. And it's coming up in a few, but first. So, remember when I did a brief check-in call segment with Mishka Shubali a few weeks ago? That was in the Chris Houth Coach's Corner episode. People seem to really enjoy it. So, before we jump in with Mr. Mosier, I thought I'd do it again, this time with another one of my very favorite people, Nadia Bowles-Weber. You guys remember Nadia, right? That was episode 428. Well, real quick for any newer folks, Nadia is my ordained but quite iconoclastic Lutheran pastor buddy. She's a three-time New York Times bestselling author. And one of her books, Accidental Saints, great book by the way, our mutual friend Pete Holmes just dropped into a Simpson episode that he wrote that just aired, which pretty much solidifies Nadia's cool factor forever. In any event, Nadia is the host of a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called The Confessional. It's pretty great. It features some people who have been on this show, like Chris Schumacher and Mishka Shubali himself. And I just wanted to give Nadia a quick minute to tell you guys a little bit about her new show. This is not an ad. I just love her to death and wanted to talk to her. So here's Nadia. How's it going? I mean, how is your quarantine experience treating you?
2: Um, I I have enjoyed almost all of it, oddly. I mean, of course, there's lots of loss and like we're all grieving these events that aren't happening or, you know, a friend of mine is, uh, my youth pastor growing up is is on the verge. He'll probably pass today or tomorrow from COVID. Oh, so wow. there are these horrible things. And yet... Um, having so much time in my apartment has, I've loved. And my, my daughter's even like sleeping on the sofa because I live in a one bedroom apartment, mm-hmm. but the apartment's beautiful. I have this little balcony, I have a puppy and I don't know. I think I, I didn't realize it till somebody asked me last week when we were talking, but I, I think I have a gift for just being wherever I'm at. Mm. And Maybe it comes from having traveled so much, you know I was on ninety airplanes last year um and I'm just i'm I can be okay wherever i'm I am somehow and uh the fact that I get to be home that much is um i'm just i I really have for the most part enjoyed it, yeah.
1: There is something nice about being able to wipe the slate clean and no longer have a bunch of commitments that you agreed to a long time ago when it seemed like a good idea. And then when they crop up, you're like, Am I really wanting to do this? Right. (laughs) And also, I think, you know, I've put a lot of thought into how alcoholism and recovery contribute to this experience that we're having on some level as alcoholics. We're like war tested for this. We have a toolbox. I think that comes in quite handy for figuring out how to navigate all of this emotionally, but we're also like Olympic level isolators. So yes, you know totally. what I mean? Like, oh, I, That's my you...
2: secret. I actually socially isolate anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's socially acceptable now.
2: Yeah, well also, you know, we had acceptance just hammered into us. That's the key, acceptance. You know,
1: and surrender. That's right. Surrendering to what what is. Yeah. What is happening? And
2: maybe that's why I have an ability to just be okay wherever I am, generally. Mm. From that.
1: Well, that is a gift. It is for is sure. A gift. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the new podcast. Thanks. It's making quite a splash on the charts.
2: Yeah. Although uh, the, I think the day after it came out, uh, your friend Mishka posted something that said, the true sign of the tide turning with this COVID crisis is when we see fewer new podcasts and not more new podcasts every day. <laughs> right, that like, is, there have to be a certain
1: number right, of- Right. The most valuable <laughs> graph- when the growth rate of podcasts starts to plateau. Yeah. We reach peak. So then I was like,
2: wah, wah.
1: I know. But amidst all the noise, you are a signal in that. And mm-hmm. you've you've made a stamp coming out strong.
2: Yeah. With
1: the confessional. I love the tagline, a car wash for shame and secrets.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's what it feels like. i it, I've it has been an absolute joy to create this thing, to have this idea and then to have the the best partners I can imagine, in, in bringing it forward, and with PRX and the Moth, and mm-hmm. just locally here in Denver, House of Pod. I don't. I just. I just feel like the absolute right people came along, and and you know, there. Were, I had a struggle for a while trying to figure out how to bring this about. You know, you and I talked about it.
1: Yeah, we've talked many times over the last. I mean, this idea cropped up it was around the time when you came into the podcast, I think. I mean, when was that? Like a year and a half ago or something?
2: Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So it's been there a while. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, here it is. It's beautifully produced and very well done. I think in this day and age, just coming out with another long form conversation podcast isn't enough. You need a specific point of view and an angle. You certainly have a point of view, but to set The context as the confessional Mm. and to create this safe space for people to be vulnerable and share their story, yeah, and have it be received by somebody who is, you know, kind of tested in this format. Mm. Um, to be able to hear that with the level of compassion and grace that you have, I think makes Mm. it unique and special.
2: Oh, yeah, thanks. I, I. All I ever want to hear is the worst thing anybody's ever done anyway. I think it's a really selfish way of of making that happen. I mean, I'm just like, how long do we have to wait till I find out? Like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? I don't know. Let's
1: get to the good part.
2: Exactly. I don't have time for like uh, kind of bullshit chit-chatty stuff. So um, also, I'm just a huge believer in... So often, if you can get somebody to talk about their biggest regret, the thing they have the most shame about that they have done, not that what that was done to them, but they have done, um, you'll find an origin story in terms of who they became after that, mm. nine times out of 10. Mm-hmm. And so while it's not saying, oh, it's okay, you did this horrible thing that hurt all these people. It's also to say, like, look, I... God, I hate to even say, it. I believe in redemption. I, I mean, if if we don't believe in, like, if we don't think people can change, that people can pivot and go a different direction, or in my tradition, you know, repent, like, think differently at different points in their life. Like, if we don't believe in human transformation, what the fuck are we doing? Mm. Like, what what are we doing? Reading literature or going to recovery meetings or meditating or any of the stuff that we do? I mean, I just believe in it and I'm sort of desperate for stories for stories about redemption, about human actual human transformation because that story is going to be a lot messier than, you know, most of what we're going to see in the media, you know, or certainly in social media.
1: <laughs> oh, it's as messy as it gets. And I think that, you know, intellectually, we're all on board with redemption, Mm -hmm. but we find ourselves in this moment where it's all about cancel culture Mm -hmm. and the ability of somebody who has done something terrible to redeem themselves in the kind of, you know, Godhead of public consciousness is very much in question. For sure. And I think for you to be able to, I mean, you come out of the gate. Super strong with Megan Phelps Roper. I mean it's yeah. a, the most you know powerful of all stories when it comes to this um, and to see that evolution play out over time and to be received by you, mm-hmm. I think gives all of us pause to consider you know how we approach and react to things that we see in the media and how people behave and what our own personal responsibility is when it comes to, whether or not we can you know allow that person the space to grow and evolve and change.
2: Man, I read a piece uh, Amanda Knox wrote yesterday. She was a foreign exchange student in Italy, an American girl. Remember mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. she was accused of of the like rape and murder of her roommate and uh she was wrongfully you know, imprisoned for gosh over a thousand days, and she's she's an extraordinary person. She wrote a think piece about the Tiger King docu series and how much of people's sort of disgust and rage and outrage was pointed towards Carol Baskin and this assumption that she uh, murdered her husband. But this think piece that that Amanda Knox wrote had said, "Hey, let's just." give pause for a minute. This is a documentary filmmaker has given you very specific information. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than actual set of all the facts that are available. And so we cannot assume that somebody is guilty of something because of an editorial choice a documentary filmmaker made. Mm -hmm. And it made me go, ooh, wow. Like her perspective is so... Searing and distinct, uh, given what she went through. In terms of the court of public opinion, you know, the Italian people, for the most part, just decided she fit, she was a character. In a narrative, she was not a person. Mm-hmm. And that character was that she was a whore. Mm-hmm. And they cast her in that. And then they convicted that character. They didn't convict her. It was, they decided who she was. So, I mean, I have a friend who's an Episcopal priest in New York um, named Jacob Smith. And he, I just always quote him because he says, look, we're all three bad days away from being an internet scandal. And most of us are already on day two. Oh no! You know, so yeah. we should fucking relax. Everybody yeah. relax because you know it's you next. Yeah, it's gonna be you next. <laughs> yeah, and how do we, you know,
1: how do we see our way forward as a culture? I mean, one of the lines um, in in your conversation with Megan, who we should say is formerly of the Westboro Baptist Church, and you know, has had this, you know, epiphany and, and evolution in terms of you know her perspective on humanity, I could say broadly, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I can't remember whether it was her or you who said, you know, more we, we perpetrate more harm when we act out of virtue than vice.
2: Yeah, that was me. I was like, look, you're so much more capable of harming other people when you're sure you're being good. I mean, look, even even police stations have a vice squad. And I'm like, where's the virtue squad? <laughs> like <laughs> we should have a virtue squad. Uh-huh. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> Policing all the people who are sure, like, first of all, they have God on their side. That's dangerous, you know. Or, uh, you know, just absolutely sure we're doing the good thing against the people who are doing the bad thing. Mm -hmm. That dualistic thinking is just so toxic and... Mm -hmm. I don't
1: know. Yeah, and packed into that is this idea that by shaming that person, you're going to change their mind. And, you know, if if Megan's example stands for anything, it's that that's not the case. It's only through understanding and compassion and grace and, and conversation that we can kind of get to the other side.
2: Yeah, I mean, talking shit about people who do bad is not the same thing as doing good. mm and I think we've sort of subtly equated it that way, at least on social media. So the only the only reason I, I have these conversations where I really try to be compassionate and I try to understand somebody as a whole person and um it, it and I and I look for stories of redemption is n- literally not because I'm good at it. It's not because I'm good at any of it. It's because I'm just desperate for it myself. Mm-hmm. That I'm willing to go to those lengths to find it for myself. So it, it, I'm not. I don't know that I'm naturally compassionate. I've just sort of realized how much I need compassion, and so therefore I'm like, well, then I guess I have to start there by offering it. It's a just a different approach, I guess. My favorite thing is just writing these blessings at the end. Yeah. They're beautiful. Of each episode, because since I'm not in a parish, you know, I've just kind of always been asking myself, like, what's mine to do? How can I be a pastoral voice and presence for people who don't intellectually assent to the same theological propositions I do or who will never find themselves in a church? And it's like... I don't know. That's been a joy. That's been the biggest joy for me is writing those.
1: Well, compassion is a practice, I think, just like gratitude or acceptance or surrender. It's a muscle that needs to be flexed and worked out.
2: Yeah, because you just listed four things I am not naturally good at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like those,
1: I, literally. Trust me, left yep. to my own devices, you know, locked up in a house with six people. There's a lot of frustration <laughs> and resentment and anger and outbursts and you know, lack of gratitude yep. uh, going
2: around, yeah. coming out of me. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, um. yeah. So, I mean, that's why my, my parishioners, when I was in my parish, were like, we're we're so glad we have a preacher who's clearly preaching to herself and just letting us overhear it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's just what my work has always ended up being. Some version of that is trying to proclaim the thing I need to hear, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the best, you know, when somebody is telling you, you should feel this way or do this, or here's your five, you know, tips to success in any facet of your life, I immediately tune out. But I'm hyper aware when somebody is doing it from a place of their own personal self-learning. And I find that to be the most kind of powerful um, medium for, for teaching when it's like, you're interested in this because this is what you need to work on. So we're all working it out in real time together.
2: Oh my God, totally. I mean, I, I almost always speak out of a deficit of something rather than out of an abundance of it. So it's not like, I have so much compassion. Like, I have so much extra. I'm just going to help you have some. <laughs> I'll just give you some of mine. I yes. just have to skim it off the top. Right. Uh, <laughs> just don't. I'm like, I am desperate and maybe together we could find enough that for both of us. Right. <laughs> you know?
1: Who are some of the other people coming up on the show?
2: Uh, Let's see. I have Amy Brenneman, the actress. Mm, mm-hmm. um, Chris Schumacher is next week. Mm. Um, who you and Former I have both met. Former guest on my he's show in... as well. Yeah, he's incredible.
1: Is Pete Holmes going to do it?
2: Uh, I don't. He, I don't know that Pete's done anything bad enough, man. Yeah, that's like the problem, he was such right? a good Christian boy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to still work on him. Uh, I put it out there for him. Let's see. We have. You um, have Mishka. M- Mishka. <laughs> Mishko, that oddly might be my favorite episode, really.
1: He's the best um he's got stories for miles too,
2: oh yeah, and he's very I good wonder at if I'm gonna them. have return guests, you know, like extra bad sinners um and then also Melissa Phoebos, who's this brilliant memoirist, she wrote Whip Smart, which is about being a dominatrix in New York for five years while she was high on heroin mm. and an honor student at the new school all at the same time. <laughs> wow you should have her on. She's, a, she's an yeah. extraordinary writer. She, um, uh, I was her middle school camp counselor for three years when she was growing up. <laughs> so that's how we know oh my each other. God. I absolutely adore her. Uh-huh. So yeah, I've got, I've got some fun. Teresa Timms, who's the Dean of the chapel at Princeton. She's on in a couple of weeks and she has this extraordinary story of going from just absolute poverty, abuse, neglect in Mississippi to like somehow being the dean of the chapel at Princeton. Like, I don't mm. know. There's no map that can get you from there to there. You know, mm. it's an incredible story. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Well, beautiful. Um You know, this is just a short segment. I wanted to check in with you and see how you're doing and talk about your podcast, which I think is great. And everybody should subscribe to it, the confessional. But maybe we can close this out with some kind of blessing or wisdom for the people who are really struggling right now, trying to figure out how to get through this very odd moment that we're experiencing, whether they're, Mm. you know... First responders, healthcare yeah. workers, people who have lost their jobs. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of suffering mm-hmm. and with that, of course, mm-hmm. emotional and you know mental trauma that people are, you know, trying to gracefully navigate and mm-hmm. need are in desperate need of tools.
2: Yeah. Well, I will I'll do that by borrowing somebody what someone else said, which um I heard our friend Jason Flom interview um one of the guys who was in the West Memphis three. Um, Damian Echols, who was uh, wrongfully imprisoned as a teenager for a murder he didn't do. And he spent 18 years on death row. So Jason just in, interviewed him on wrongful conviction mm. about, hey, what wisdom do you have, Damian, about how to not lose your shit when you're isolated and he, everything's been taken away? And the one thing Damian said at the beginning just stayed with me. And he And it's counterintuitive. And he said, I realized that if I was going to keep from going crazy I had to learn how to not live for the future and I like I think I stopped breathing when I heard him say that because what he meant was if I allowed my my brain to think am I going to get out? When am I going to get out? Is this ever going to be over? When's my execution date? Are they going to kill me in the future? Anything other than the day he was in, he would be miserable. And so he said, all I could do was to live the best life I could live in the day I was in. And that I think has been really helpful at least for me, because some days the best life I can live is to really not do anything but make sure I get fed that day. That was it, right? Some days it's tidying up and cleaning and checking in on people I think are having a hard time, right? That's going to vary. But what is the best life I can have in the day I'm in? Because look, none of us is promised another day. Not None of us is promised another day. All we have is this one, and I know that sounds trite, but I think this is the moment where we settle into the reality of that in the best way we possibly can.
1: It's very Eckhart Tolle.
2: Yeah, probably. I don't know. I've be never read present him. Present
1: <laughs> in the moment that we're in. Oh, you haven't? <clears throat> no, That's I know. Surprising. I thought you would have read him. But simple and simple and yet and and yet profound. And I think mm-hmm. the fact that we're all being compelled to stop is forcing us to. Mm-hmm. Be present with ourselves, mm-hmm. and that's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. also.
2: Yeah, yeah. As as my man Jesus said, <laughs> don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has worries of its own. You know, don't worry about that. Yeah, it, 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 that has that is its own thing, and it's not right now. You know, so I just I try and try and keep remembering that because I forget it a lot.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, for sharing.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks with for the today for checking up on me, I I appreciate it. You've been a huge supporter and you've, you really, I mean, you really did help me get to where I'm at in terms of just taking my call and answering questions and offering support. It's really appreciated, thanks.
1: Well, my pleasure. I think that this medium is perfect for you Mm. and you've hit it out of the park with this show. So again, everybody check it out, The Confessional. It's fantastic. Mm. And when this all lifts, and we resume some version of normality, <laughs> uh, let's get together again yeah, and for do sure. another podcast in oh, person. I'd love that, person.
2: I'd love that. Cool. All right, thanks, friend. All right,
1: thanks, Nadia. Love you.
2: All right, bye-bye. She's the bomb, right? Okay, back
1: to Chris. So this is a conversation that was recorded way back at the end of January, which seems like a lifetime ago. And it was originally slated to air many weeks ago, but then the world suddenly changed and it just didn't feel like the right moment to share this particular conversation. But it feels like now is the right moment because elections are around the corner, critical human rights will be cast across ballots. And so I felt compelled to momentarily interrupt this 24-7 pandemic news cycle to Explore some different terrain because there is much at stake for many come November. So, this is a conversation about those rights that are currently in play. Of course, it's about Chris's life, his transition, his trials, his tribulations, but it's also about privileges of gender, race, and class, and Chris's courage to leverage his prowess as an athlete to set a precedent for those who will come after him and his quest to balance equal access to sports with a fair playing field. But more than anything, this is about what it's like to have your existence, your very existence up for debate and how our country is treating so many of its citizens as non-humans. Right now, 41% of trans youth attempt suicide. So let's think about that for a minute. I mean, that is an absolutely horrific and devastating statistic. It's not right, it's gotta change. And that change begins with education, begins with understanding and ultimately compassion, which is what I'm trying to do here today. I'm grateful to share Chris's bravery and his vulnerability with all of you today and I'm proud to be his ally and his friend. So, here we are. This is me and Chris Mosher. All right, man. So, this is this is I think 3 years in the making. Yeah. I first came across your story. <laughs> I laugh every time I think about <laughs> this. I I was I first became familiar with you Through that November Project documentary when I was prepping to have Brogan on the show. Uh, And interestingly, uh, Brogan, as he's wont to do from time to time, sends me video messages, text messages, as I'm sure he does to you as well. So I got one of those today, sent him back a video and said that you were coming in. And he said that you guys often have a chuckle because I brought you up in the course of that podcast, but I didn't say your name. And so we brushed up against the name drop, but it didn't actually happen. Yeah,
0: I was super pumped because <laughs> yeah, you had mentioned like a, that transgender athlete uh-huh. in the, in the right, showing that. up video. No, maybe you didn't yeah. say that. Maybe. I don't know what I said. <laughs> um, and I, I think I tweeted you and said, I always almost mentioned. Uh, right, yeah, sorry about that. Well, <laughs> you good. know,
1: maybe I'll go back and edit it. Edit, edit your <laughs> name into
0: that. <laughs> um, and,
1: And, you know, ever since that experience, like I cottoned onto your story and I've been following everything that you've been doing ever since. And as I just mentioned to you before we even started, we have been endeavoring to try to make this happen for a long time. Uh, And I think, you know, experience has dictated that these things happen when they're supposed to happen. And I think we're in a really interesting moment right now that makes the timing of this conversation, I think, uh, potentially much more impactful than it would have been previously. Yeah, I think we're here in yeah. the right
0: moment right now.
1: Right. Um one thing that uh that's been running space in my head is as you know, I had Kendra Little on the show a little while back and mm-hmm. you tweeted like, "Oh, I'm so excited to hear this." And then there was nothing after that and I and I've been <laughs> so I've been like I've been like, you know, going, "Oh man, did I did I, did I not handle that correctly? Did I miss speak or misstep and so before we even get into your story and all the many things i want to talk to you about like how did that go for you was that did i did i navigate that conversation appropriately given your who you are and your perspective on all of this.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. So okay. Kendra's story is kind I feel story. much better. Yeah, no, he, allow <laughs> yeah. me to validate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, um, I always need the validation. No, so no, I, go I, ahead. I get it. I mean, I did set that up. Like I was gonna say something else about uh, it and probably got I was like, up, I got you know, nothing. Olympic trials. And I was like,
1: and, man, I've been racking my head thinking like, <laughs> where did I, did I go wrong there? Like I thought I handled it with kid gloves
0: and, Yeah, you really did. And I think that's one of the things that I've always appreciated about you, Rich, Mm -hmm. is that I think that you come to these conversations with um, open heart and open mind to learn and to sort of tease out different things for your listeners. Uh And so I was really happy with the way that that... that that came off, and and at the same time, it's very different. Um, yeah. Intersex is not yeah, transgender, yeah, yeah. and you know there were things within there that that aren't applicable to trans athletes that aren't applicable to my story. And of course, you know, I, I get the next uh, bit of time here with you right. to sort all that out.
1: Yeah, and I think I think I said it in that conversation, but it bears repeating, which is that these things get conflated: intersex and, and
0: transgender, and they're very different things. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. Um, We're seeing a lot of conversations crossing, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically at the elite level uh, when we have Castro Semenya come up and um, International Olympic policy on transgender athletes, and it's not the same. So, there's a lot to dive in there. Right.
1: So, first of all, congratulations on on the Olympic trials. I know it didn't go as you wished it would have. Um, And also, the New York Times piece that just came out. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's pretty crazy and my favorite part of the New York Times article was the other race walker saying, was it harder to come out as a transgender athlete or as a race walker? It was a very funny (laughs) moment.
0: Yeah, you know, it was funny because at that time I had not yet come out as a race walker.
1: Right. Um, For some reason- I was like, wait, what? Like I read that, I didn't even know, like I've sort of been paying attention to you, but a little bit at arm's length. And so I wasn't even aware of that part of this whole thing.
0: Yeah, and it was really vague and I was intentionally Uh vague about it in my (laughs) social media, even after my first race um, and my first national championship that I kind of was really vague about it. And I think part of that was, I wasn't exactly sure how far I was going to go in this and how seriously I was committing to it. And, you know, I was just trying to sort out my own Sort of thoughts about, but it. but you were at the Olympic trials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: yeah. It was. Amazing. I only know a few transgender people, but you're
0: definitely the first race walker I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and, and see, I think, I think that's it. I wasn't ready to fully commit my identity to being that of a race walker uh-huh. because I'm, I'm so. Um, involved in the multi-sport community. Right. And already telling people I'm a do athlete, I have to explain right. that, you know, Hard race enough. walking goes straight to mall walking, which yeah. then is a whole other conversation <laughs> of, of communication. But I think it's, it's awesome because it is, uh, you know, there are a lot of laughs associated with it, but yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I think race walking is harder than running.
1: Is it? Um, well, the, so the idea is at all times, one foot has to have contact with the, pa- or both feet have to be in contact with the pavement. Uh, one, one foot. foot. One yeah, foot. Yeah, of course. Yep. Not yeah. Both.
0: <laughs> that, would,
1: that would be really hard.
0: That would be super uh, hard. You'd
1: be shuffling, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. One foot. So how do you even develop that technique? I mean, you just stumbled into this sport super recently and you've had this crazy ascension.
0: Yeah. So I started in. Uh, about May and suffered a knee injury within like 10 days Uh of starting race walking. So I really started training in June and qualified um, or posted my time that got me into the trials in October and have been battling injury since then. So it's been a very short amount of time. Uh, You know, the the movement is not natural. And I think I said that a number of times in my race to myself, like no human is made to move like this um, unless you actually know the technique and then, uh, you know, these guys are flying who are you know, posting up a 350 time for, for 50K wow. walking. Uh, that's one foot on the Yeah, that's around. pretty crazy. It's it's a, yeah.
1: It's a weird like hip jiggle thing.
0: Yeah. It's, like how it, do you it, even it learn that technique? Um, I think I'm still working on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how did they- Police that over fifty k. Like well, if somebody just started to break into a run in the middle of the race, there can't be judges all along the way making sure that that foot is always on the, oh, they're, always making contact. Well,
0: for perspective, so the, when I qualified uh, the first race I did fifty k was a two kilometer loop. Uh-huh. Uh, this uh-huh. race for the trials was a one point two five kilometer loop with judges everywhere, I and see. you know it's, it's sort of a an out and back, and so the judges are looking on both sides and since only 15 competitors compete in the Olympic trials and then there was an invitational as well yeah. that started later you know it was very easy for them to keep eyes on everybody uh, if somebody does start to break form uh, there are warning paddles that come up you get 3 warnings and then you have a time penalty and then on the fourth warning you are pulled from the race I see yeah. so how
1: many were in the field at trials 15 is the cap That's yeah. it oh so they only take yeah. 15 so it's not yeah. a time standard it was thing It's 15 yep yeah. So, uh,
0: there is a time standard, and when people don't meet the time standard, then they fill the rest of the field to 15. I, so see. I think that's the ideal. Wow, it's a pretty small group. Yeah, yeah.
1: It must be, you know, a pretty tight knit community. There just can't be that many people that are out doing this. Yeah.
0: I've been super pleased with how welcomed I've felt and, and yeah. have been in the racewalking community. Um, there were, you know, the guy who asked me if I came out as a racewalker had heard about my story prior to showing up at the race. Um, we chatted for about 30 kilometers uh-huh. of that race and everyone, I, I just have the sense, like everyone wants to see me succeed. They want, cool. um, you know, they want more people <clears throat> to join racewalking. They want the word to get out. And, um, yeah, it's really a, a tight knit community.
1: Well, you have really made your mark on not just, uh, the transgender community and, um, and, uh, and you know, how that works within sports, but really on sports overall in general, like it's, it's really remarkable the, the level of advocacy that you shoulder and the extent to which you really have created change. It's really something. So I want to, I want to explore all of that, but let's contextualize
0: it by taking it back and hearing the superhuman origin story. Yeah. I grew up playing girls and women's sports. Um, so I was assigned female at birth, was mm-hmm. raised and socialized as a little girl and grew up playing girls and women's sports. I was a three-sport all-conference athlete in high school. Grew up in suburbs of Chicago. Suburbs of Chicago yeah. until about high school and then moved up to Wisconsin. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, going from uh, a large suburb, large school to a class of 25 students uh you know it was right. shocking um but that's what you do there you play sports and so it was season to season to season and that's So how, just
1: the traditional sort of basketball baseball kind of thing? Yeah volleyball uh-huh. basketball volleyball.
0: softball. Right. Um you know that was that was life. Yeah. And that was how I made friends that was how I found my community there and really at that time um you know I didn't even have the word transgender on my radar when I was a young person. I didn't know anybody in high school who identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer Uh, in a very small school. Mm. Ninety-nine students in the high school in total. Wow. And it's 300 from K through 12. They've actually shut down the school because there are so few people who are up there. And, you know, it it doesn't allow for a lot of diversity. Yeah. And so this was really not on my radar. And what I knew about the queer community, about the trans community – was what I saw on TV. Uh-huh. And at that time, you know, this is... Not a lot. Maury Povich and Jerry yeah. Springer, and they were not positive representations or accurate representations of what it means to be mm-hmm. trans. And in most cases, I was only seeing transgender women in, in movies mm-hmm. or on reality TV.
1: And, and this was like pre-L
0: word, probably, even... Yeah, and yeah. I actually never, I didn't have that channel, whatever it was, and i uh-huh. um, not a big TV person, so right. um, I missed all of that.
1: And, and sort of socially, like how was that? I mean, you, you've said, you know, that, that you had a sense that you were different that dates back to as early as you being four, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So how did that translate in terms of how you kind of navigated
0: your social life throughout junior high and high school? I think my plan was to make myself as busy as possible so that no one really got a chance to know me. Uh-huh. I was too busy. Moving to, target. Yeah, absolutely. But I was friends with everybody. Uh, you know, people in, in high school and college would call me a social butterfly that I could go to any of the different friend groups or cliques and fit in well and then back out and go somewhere else. Yeah. And I, th- I really think that was a strategy, not only to not allow other people to get to know me, but so that I didn't have to spend the time really thinking about who I was as a person Uh and thinking about myself.
1: And as long as you were out on the field, like it was a comfortable
0: place where you felt like you were accepted? Yeah, always. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think from my earliest memories were from sports and from fitting in and, and finding friends because I was a good athlete, a great teammate, and a good leader. And, you know, my willingness to sacrifice for the team it was always a positive right. part of being a teammate. And so that was a really easy place for me to fit in and, and to find out more about myself. Yeah. You know, I, right now I would say, even as an adult, I all of the things that I love about myself in terms of my values and my work ethic, you know, in my thought process and how I communicate with other people, you know, my perspective on winning and losing, um, goal setting, all of that comes from those very early uh, yeah. lessons that that I learned in sport.
1: Yeah, and it seems like that that sensibility was allowed you to kind of transcend whatever, you know, sense of difference that you felt or may have, you know, been perceived to have by your classmates and your teammates because you were such a good team member,
0: it that that like took care of everything else, right? And yeah. made it okay. Yep, and that was my solution for yeah. that feeling that I had that I didn't quite fit in. It was already hard enough going to that small school from, you know, suburb of a city and dressing differently. And I was listening to different music and Mm -hmm. had different fashion sense and interests. And, you know, when I'm there with them, it was like a two-year time gap where it was my end of sophomore year before people started to listen to what I was listening to or Mm -hmm. dress the way I was dressing. And so I, I just felt that I was so out of place there um but but sports and that common goal of of wanting to succeed as a team was really what grounded me in that community yeah
1: was it a sense that you're just you were just a tomboy
0: initially yeah i think so but i you know i think just because i didn't have the language or the terminology to assign uh-huh. to it like i knew i wasn't like my brother so i have a, a brother who's a year and a half younger than me and growing mm-hmm. up i knew that i wasn't like him and i also knew that people didn't treat me the way that they treated him or give me the same opportunities that they gave him. And so I felt that difference. But also when I looked at the girls in my class, I knew that I wasn't like them. Yeah. And, you know, I had just hindsight is so interesting, because there are all these moments where it it all lines up for me. Uh, every single, you know, part of my childhood of, of what I was interested in, and how I behaved. And, you know, I have all of these memories of adults telling me, you can't, do this because little girls don't do this. You can't dress like this. You can't play this sport. Um, You shouldn't act like this. And every part of me felt that was authentic expression. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't learning that from other places. It was just truly who I was.
1: Right, and short of sports, uh, I would suspect that that would be, you know it, it had to be lonely, right? Feeling like you didn't fit into either of those categories, sports being the refuge, but short of sports, You can begin to see why somebody who's having a similar experience to you would start to develop, you know, depression and other kind of mental, you know, problems around that, that feeling of isolation and and distance.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a very common thing that we hear with not just queer athletes, trans athletes, but the LGBTQ plus community in general is that there are so many of us who feel like we are the only ones going through this experience. Mm. And I think it's really that feeling. And, and I can't say in high school that I really felt that because I did such a good job of putting my energy into sports, into extracurricular activities, uh, the yearbook and the newspaper and mm-hmm. photography and, and extra jobs and anything that I could do to keep myself from having to spend that time right. of, of feeling loneliness and discomfort and disconnection. Um, you know, but looking back, that was all false. It was all false connections. It wasn't yeah. real authentic because I didn't want people to seem the real me. I didn't want people to really get to know the real me because I had received messages for 10 years at that point that that who I was as a person was not okay. And it was not the way that I was supposed to be. Yeah. And I don't
1: think that really well, changed the way- But the sports part is authentic, right? I mean, on some level, it's a mask, right? To keep people at
0: bay. Oh yeah, but it was really- uh, True love for me. Yeah, um, it's where I felt most like myself. Uh huh. So you graduate from high school,
1: you go to Northern Michigan yep. University. Yep. I'm, I'm from Michigan. So Are you? Where is Northern
0: oh, yeah. Michigan University? It's in the UP. It's in Marquette. Oh, wow. Yeah, all the way up. Oh my
1: goodness. Yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, you went from a small school in Wisconsin to like an inc- a, an incredibly isolated community up there, right? Yeah, I did. And in find Probably a not of, a lot of diversity up there. Yeah, except for the athletes. <laughs> and that oh, was yeah? really right. one
0: of the things is that um, that was, yeah, except for the athletes, uh-huh. there, there wasn't a lot of diversity. But- that's more racial diversity. There wasn't a lot of diversity in terms of um, LGBTQ plus acceptance right. either. Um, and, and it also points to the time period. Like people just weren't really talking about that when I was in college. And, and we're talking mm-hmm. 1998 to 2003, five mm-hmm. wonderful years in, in Michigan, uh, that people just weren't talking about it. And, uh-huh. and uh, it, it, was, it was a very different time. So, how do you begin to piece this together for yourself, and 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 you know, start to own your identity? It didn't happen when I was there. Uh, in hindsight, again, looking back, you know, my dream was to play college basketball, and I had hopes of going to college and playing and having my name on the back of a jersey and uh-huh. being you know having that that athletic experience. And when the time came to make a decision, I had so many different excuses and chose not to play basketball.
1: What do you mean excuses? Like you were you were afraid or
0: oh absolutely was, yeah. but but how that how that came out was, you know, I'm a first generation college student. No one in my family has ever gone to school and navigating that process to even go to school was a challenge for me. Uh-huh. And I knew that there was, it was a huge investment not just of my own money, but also of my time and, you know, my family's energy. And so I knew I'd have to pay for school myself mm. and thought okay, I'm not getting a scholarship. I'm going to have to have jobs. So I can't be an athlete and pay for school at the same time. And I thought, you know, this is a huge investment in in myself and I want to get a great job after college. And, you know, if I'm not paying attention to my academics, that's not going to happen. So, you know, how are your,
1: how are your folks growing up? Um, In what way? Well, in the sense of, of, you know, raising you, there must've been, you know, some idea that you were a bit, you know, askew from a traditional notion of, you know, what they probably expected their daughter to look like at that time. Right. Yeah. So how, how have they navigated that whole thing?
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've I've never really had a conversation about my, with my mom about this. And I Mm. think that when I finally understood my identity, I was terrified to tell her Um, she raised me as a single parent Uh, dad left the picture sort of in and out uh from the age of eight and he is still around but but we haven't been in communication for about uh 15 20 years maybe Mm. and and it was not related to my identity Uh, at that time i didn't know i was trans and I, i wasn't out as queer um but You know, for my mom, I think when I did come out as trans, I think she would have been more surprised if I said I was going to wear a dress the next day than to kind of tell her and explain to her what transgender identity meant. Um, But you know, I was raised in a very loving household, and and she encouraged me to play sports despite my injuries when I was a kid. I I often heard like you were not meant to play sports, Uh you know, with a twisted ankle or bruised ribs or whatever. But um, you know, I I felt like I had full support from her to participate in sports. In terms of how I showed up in the world, I think that I definitely didn't line up with the vision of what she had for a little girl. And, you know, whether that was going to clothing shopping at the start of the school year and me wanting to go to the boys section and her saying, come over here, um, or people in in stores um, saying your son and her correcting them and saying, that's my daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that that, I can only guess. Um, probably brought up a lot of things for her. <clears throat> but you haven't really fully fleshed it out with her? Yeah, have you? Yeah, no. Because it's like it's just too sensitive, you think? Yeah, and I think yeah. that there's a lot, um, a lot of things that have been unsaid between the two of us. And and when I came out, you know, she was so incredibly supportive. It was um That's I was good. Terrified to tell her and delayed telling her because I didn't want it to be like, you know, um oh, Thanksgiving, that's when Chris came out as a man, right? Like, I didn't want it to be attached to a holiday. I'm not seeing her all the time. Um, And really wanted to make sure that I expressed to her how important this was, how significant this is, and how real this is for me. And, you know, she's the one who named me. And so, you know, I thought, like, you know, she had a daughter and two sons and now she has three sons. Mm -hmm. And that changes things for her. That's Mm -hmm. a transition for her as well. And how she talks in her small community about, you know, when people come back and don't know and say, how's your daughter? You know, what is the response to that? Right. So I'm very um, aware that there are challenges for her to deal with that I will never know. Yeah things about
1: things are changing though they've changed quite a bit i mean i feel like the the permissiveness and the the education you know piece to all of this has has grown so much um and you know just the word transgender and the kind of um you know acceptance that we're seeing in certain parts of america and the world is so much more than it I'm, you know, obviously there's a long way to go here. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that this is being talked about in a way that is unprecedented. You know, I'm older than you. Like this was, you know, I mean, like, I'm I'm trying really hard to not be like the okay boomer guy here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but you know, it, it's a lot different now than it was, you know, when you were growing up and certainly when I was growing up. And And I'm interested in why you think like, This moment is happening now.
0: Yeah, visibility is a powerful tool for social change. And the more visibility that we have, the more awareness is created. And it's really been interesting since I came out in 2010. Uh, Came out publicly in the Advocate magazine, Uh New York Times article shortly after. And that was sort of what stepped me into this public identity as an out-trans man. Which is a decision that you only make one time with the yeah. internet, right? right? I'm forever yeah, yeah, the transgender yeah. athlete. Yeah. Um, there it was, had to be a hard decision. It was, it was incredibly hard. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. was, it was a very challenging decision because part of me just wanted to go somewhere and live the life that I knew that I was meant to live, to switch jobs, switch communities, and just like be the dude that, that I wanted right. to be.
1: But your interest in sport and your desire to be this, you know, elite, you know, professional athlete kind of mandated that you be somewhat public about it because you would have to change your classification and there was gonna have to be, you know, like to change your name and then that classification when you're kind of moving your way up the ranks in triathlon and people knew who you were prior,
0: that's gonna require some public visibility. Yeah, but I think even more than that, it it really wasn't about that. I thought that I was going to lose sport. And when I knew my identity, when I knew that I was trans, I waited over a year and a half to actually come out because I was terrified of losing my ability to compete. When I finally made that decision to publicly come out, what it really was was I didn't want anybody else to feel the way that I felt, Mm -hmm. to feel like there was no place in sport for them, that there was nobody that they could look to and see a possibility or a reflection of themselves. Right. When, I was, when I was thinking about transition, I didn't see any trans men competing with men. And more than that, I didn't see transgender athletes in general. I mean, I'm not the first transgender athlete. I'm right. not the first public trans athlete, but there was a big gap between other out right. trans athletes and, and my coming out in 2010. Right. All right. Well,
1: going back, you're at Northern Michigan, you're hustling multiple jobs, doing that whole thing. And you make the decision to not play basketball, but how do you find your way back
0: into sports? So I had a job in the um, the student center serving food. And one day the college mascot walked in with the cheerleading team. Uh And I looked at my coworker and said, I'm going to do that. What's the Northern Michigan mascot? It's Wildcat Willie, Wildcat Willie. So um, I I bring this up because I got my NCAA division one letter in cheerleading, which I think Uh is hilarious. Uh, (laughs) Because because I did a year and a half as the mascot. And Uh while people might say that's not a very athletic uh, part, you know, I I was working out with the cheerleading team, going to practices and going to games, uh, but all of it was done in this really safe way where I was in full costume behind a gigantic yeah. mask.
1: No one. Did anyone know who you, who the mascot was? Did My, They know it was
0: you. The other mascots and the cheerleading team. That My was it? college roommate didn't know for uh-huh. a very long time. Yeah, uh, in the internet age, that probably wouldn't be possible. Yes, but. <laughs> correct. But at that time, it was it was top secret and yeah. you know sort of that um, uh, Disneyland mentality. You never have the head off. And for me, that was really um, it was awesome because I got to connect with people in that college environment, in that sports environment. And, you know, everybody wants to take a picture with the mascot. And I, in reflecting, saw that that was one of the only times I smiled in photos at that time period in my life was when I was in a mask and no one could see me. Mm. Because I felt like I didn't want to be seen outside of that. Like, even for me now, I I don't look back at old photos and I don't, Post old photos. I, you know, uh, that was a very painful time for me, mm. and I couldn't have expressed that. I think outwardly at that time, I couldn't put words to my pain. But looking back on it, I know that um, you know I, I was hurting, and I didn't know why.
1: Yeah, it's it's life meets metaphor, right? Like you were mm-hmm. literally inside a costume, yeah, so that you could be in the world and yet
0: not be seen. Yeah, and I felt the most comfortable there, yeah. and you know um wildcat willie is a is a boy, oh, yeah. wildcat it's crazy.
1: Around. It's almost like your subconscious chose that,
0: yeah, right? and I think my subconscious chose quite a few things that all line up for me now, hmm. like what else um you know, I think just the way that I navigated sports and that um you know in college used to come back to um how did I participate after I chose not to play basketball because. There's basketball, and then there's women's basketball uh-huh. and for me, it was that I didn't feel like being on the women's team fit me, and I couldn't say that, but that's you know I didn't want to go into a women's locker room I didn't want to be a part of a group where people are saying, "Hey, ladies, you know let's go girls right um, I chose to do intramural sports and participate in anything that was co-ed, anything uh-huh. that I could show up already in my clothes and not have to use a locker room and you know, be out there with other people, but not have to be on that gendered team.
1: Right. It lets you off the hook of having to answer that question or even
0: have to deal with any of that. Yeah. Right. And that's really how I got into running after school as well, was that that was something that I could do straight from my door mm-hmm. to go out and not have to interact with people. And eventually when I did want to compete, that I could do that, but in an individual way, as opposed to being a part of uh-huh. a gendered team.
1: Right. Were you fast right, of the, right away when you started running? No. No? No. You're no, I don't think running.
0: so. Really? Yeah. I don't I mean, you know, I think I, I really had to work for it. So um the way that I got into running was in my last year of school I had two mini strokes. And oh, whoa, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. And so I um I, you know, suffered a lot of health issues in that last fifth year of college. Uh huh. And um strokes in college? That's very unusual. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of these things that now when I talk about it, like I wish that I had the understanding of health and, you know, what it means to be healthy and take care of yourself because I just wasn't asking the right questions at that time. And, you know, again, looking back, part of me probably didn't care if something bad happened to Mm me. Um, And I never felt like I was depressed and I never really felt like I uh, was isolating myself, but I... Certainly was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of physical manifestation of the stress I was feeling and, you know, whatever else caused that um, was really what sort of put me on this path of of wanting to see how far I could push my body. And that was Mm -hmm. sort of when I came back into running, started into running after that, was seeing a Chicago Marathon banner when I was in the city and saying, I'm going to do that. Um, you know, me not being able to run a quarter mile at that point, um, saying that that's what I want to work on. But holding
1: out this aspiration, like this is, this is potentially, you know, a way forward Mm -hmm. for me. So was there like a level of self-sabotage with your health or was it just kind of harboring all of that stress, you know, whether it was unconscious or conscious, um, that dissonance between true identity and, and how you were, you know, making choices about how to navigate the world that you think precipitated like the strokes and these health problems that you were
0: having? It was absolutely self-sabotage, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it didn't manifest for me in cutting or, you know, self-harm like that. Uh Um, You know, I think it was that I, I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating well and I wasn't drinking water. And, you know, I was really stressing myself out, trying not to think about, myself and my identity yeah. and how I fit in in this world. And I think there's something about being faced with um, being on the edge of your freshman year of life. You know, you hit that final year of school and say, all of this identity that I have here as a student leader, as a student athlete, as a person who works here or does this activity, uh, community service, whatever, all of that is going to go away. Mm-hmm. And when I leave here, I'm going to have a piece of paper and what? And I did not put time into that what. Mm. And that was a very frightening situation to be in, knowing that the end was near of school and that I would have to figure all of this out. So you had no sense of what you wanted to do after college. I had no job lined up. Uh I had no home lined up. And my now wife, who I was kind of off and on seeing, but I wouldn't admit that I liked her, um, sent me a key to her apartment in LA. And- you know, seven days before graduation, I get this key in the mail and says, we can be roommates. I packed my car after school and drove over here with no job. Wow. No idea of what I would do.
1: And you, you met your
0: wife in college, right? Yeah, she yeah.
1: was visiting a friend. I oh, so she yeah. wasn't a, a fellow student. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So you came here. See, I thought you went to New York after college. You came here. Yeah, wow. I came here, lived in Koreatown
0: and then uh-huh. Venice and then moved to Chicago for right. graduate school. right. And what did you study in graduate school? I studied higher education. So yeah, you know, I just had, I had such a great sort of like um, Saved by the Bell experience when I was in college in terms of my activities and, you know, being a part of different groups and organizations. I said that the other day to a group of students in college and they had no idea what Saved by the Bell was. So I feel like (laughs) maybe I need to change that reference. But, um, you know, I had a really great experience being in the student newspaper Mm -hmm. and the yearbook and the radio and all of that. And I sort of felt like I had an art degree and that's, I got a graphic design degree. I was working in a newspaper in Santa Monica as an art director and just didn't love the deadline life. And I thought, you know, that is probably around the time where I had this sort of calling to give back to other people. Uh And I thought that was the best way for me to give back would be to go and work at a college and allow other students to have the experience that I had.
1: Right. So this is early 2000s, 2003 or four, something like that. Yep. Uh Yep. That's right. Right, and so meanwhile, running or what's going on sports-wise?
0: Yeah, running here, um, nothing organized, just running along the beach and yeah. the boardwalk. And um, you know, I think also trying to come back to my health um, you know, after the, the mini strokes and then um, being put on painkillers and, and struggling and grappling with what that meant right. for me. Um, and, you know, I was never addicted to painkillers, but I certainly don't think I was using them appropriately. Uh-huh. And I think part of that was self-soothing, um, you know, to I, – I wasn't drinking, yeah. I wasn't doing drugs. It works that way initially. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And um, I think I saw that in myself because my dad was an alcoholic mm-hmm. and I've always been very conscious and aware of relationship to that sort of um, distancing of you – know, my reality, I guess. Mm.
1: Well, you can't put on the mascot costume anymore. Yeah. So what else are you going to put in front of you to, you know, to kind of mute that noise or create a little buffer between you and the world?
0: Yeah. And my time here, which was about a year and a half, was really trying to figure that out before I went to grad school. Um, I really struggled because how do you make friends as an adult? You know, Uh, it was something that I didn't really think about, but I made all my friends in my residence hall or in my organizations or in my, you know, sports groups that when I came here with no one aside from Jen, you know, I, I just didn't know what to do. And so. Yeah. And
1: LA can be very lonely in that way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, it's really hard to connect with people here, I think.
0: Yeah. But I think that that was the time period where I started to put the pieces together. And a lot of that was due to my relationship with Jen, uh-huh. um, that when we would go out, people would see us as a lesbian couple. And that word never resonated with me. Right.
1: Um, I, you can't blame them, though.
0: Yeah, no, no, right. no yeah, yeah. And I think there's something about, you know, people want to assign labels to people. And, you know, think about bisexual identity. When we see someone, uh, you know, a man in a relationship with a man, we never assume he's bisexual. People just say, oh. He's gay, uh-huh. um, you know. So there, there is complexity to our relationships that aren't always accurately labeled. Yeah, um, when people would say that, or um, you know, I have some distinct memories of people saying, "Hey, ladies," to us, and me just feeling like, um, you know, it it didn't sit well with me. Um, it it felt wrong, and it it had a very physical reaction for me. And I think that was the you know the first parts mm-hmm. of really having to put it together and figure it out. And, you know, in hindsight, I can say the reason that didn't fit was that I didn't identify as a woman. Right. And so- And did
1: did Jen, that's how you say her name, yeah. is that, I mean, how is she, you know, was she aware of this at the time? Like, here's, this is what's amazing. Like, so Jen has been with you throughout this entire thing, right? You guys yeah. are married. You met her, you know, prior to- transitioning and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's been kind of like the steady constant in all of this, but on some level, I suspect she must've, I mean, did you guys have conversations about this or like was she, what was her awareness level in terms of, you know, what you were struggling with?
0: Yeah, I think I have blinked out on a big part of this and I'm sure my my explanation experience is very different than her perspective on it. Um, You know, initially when I started talking about our relationship and about my transition, I would say, Transition is a transition for everybody, right? So, like, how m- my relationship um, might change with my mom, right? So, uh-huh. it changes her her view and her position to me and how she talks about me. And it was never like that for Jen. Um, you know, she fell in love with me as a person, and we had this amazing experience of getting to know each other sort of through written word, um, through messaging and through letters and things like that, like super old school, uh-huh. <laughs> and and I think that we got a different sense of of who each other were, and so I think that she already she always knew that there was something about me, uh, and I think that when she started to see my own discomfort in those situations when we're out in public or when we're together, you know, that's really what prompted her, I assume, to say to me, you know, I think that you need to put some time and energy into thinking about your identity. And that's really how I was sort of, you know, gently guided in the right direction mm. of, of actualizing and talking about it and figuring it out. Right. That's, that's very unique and amazing. Yeah. And to have you know? her throughout this process, I mean, I think- a lot I would of-
1: imagine most people don't have somebody like that when yeah. they're dealing with this kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. And and I think that that is a, a real fear for people in our community to say, like, you know, there are so many things out there. There are house bills and policies and laws that say that we don't deserve love and respect, that we don't deserve protections and equal rights. And so to have somebody who not only, you know, loves me and respects me and protects me, but also is here for me to grow and, and encouraging me to grow and just to be my best, most authentic self. Yeah. You know, that's a really uh, amazing Yeah. Not gift. just,
1: not just someone who is understanding, but also encouraging you, like pushing you
0: in that direction. Yeah. And I never felt pushed and I never felt forced and I never felt like, um, like, you know, there was no, um, there was no force behind it. It was Uh, gentle guiding, you know, like she had more information than I had. She had more uh, information about the queer community. She had been around more people, had more diversity in her life. And so I think it was really awesome that she, you know, was able to see that I was struggling or Mm. however she would phrase it and to sort of point me in the direction of books and, you know, magazine articles and, and things I should watch on YouTube or- So
1: she was living out here, but where is she from? Uh, Chicago, Chicago. Uh, so so yeah, more really. like urban metropolitan yeah. upbringing. Yeah, she snatches this person from northern Michigan and you know rural Wisconsin. Yeah, it's like here I'm gonna, I'm gonna like you know, edify this person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't
0: think that, that was it. I was not a project for her.
1: Um, but but, but I would really imagine cool. like, listen, if you're in an intimate relationship and you're not, you know, authentically who you are, there's gonna be a barrier to, to intimacy, right? Because you're not, you're not a fully integrated person.
0: Yeah, If you're sure. like
1: kind of walking around in the world feeling disconnected because you're not sure who you're, you are or you're supposed to be. Or yeah. maybe you do, but you're afraid to be that person.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's what was so magical about her, and remains magical about uh-huh. her, is that her is her encouragement for me to figure that out and to be right. my best, most integrated, authentic self, to so that we can have a, a deeper and more meaningful relationship.
1: Uh-huh. So you guys go to Chicago together when you go to uh, grad
0: school. She went to New York for grad uh-huh. school, and I went to Chicago. Hmm. So, and so long, it was a year still, apart,
1: long distance kind of thing for a while. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then at some point you you did move to New York
0: though, right? Yes. And lived there so for a while. Because I, I can't it.
1: I know you're you've been in Chicago and New York, but I don't know the time
0: timeline on all that. Yeah, one year of graduate school in Chicago, and then I got an internship at Cornell University in New York mm-hmm. and got a job opportunity shortly after, uh, decided to skip my second year of grad school and take this amazing opportunity in New York where I would live rent-free for the duration of my time there. That's not bad. <laughs> not bad. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah. Well, a world must have opened up to you when you got to New York City. You know, it didn't, it didn't. And yeah. it was really interesting that even in, um, there was this awareness that there were more people potentially in the world like me and like us, like more queer people. And I remember seeing at that time, so say 2005, 2006, uh, you know, two men holding hands in the street and being like, oh, wow, like it, it was on my radar, right? And, and, I, and it would ping for me when I would see same-sex couples mm-hmm. or what a, queer families. And that was a different experience, but it wasn't close enough to me. Um, and what I mean by that is even in being there, I didn't know any trans people in real life almost all the way up until mm-hmm. my transition. There were very few and no one that I had that I felt like I could go to and ask questions and sort of bounce ideas off of or, or even be close enough to get a sense of what that meant for them.
1: So walk me up to you know, the epiphany that you know, this is the person that you're meant to be and then the actions that you then take to kind of make that happen.
0: I mean, I'm sure it was a lot of things leading up to it, right? But I remember distinctly watching YouTube videos for hours, uh, hours and hours uh-huh. of people documenting their transition. So it was people, mostly young people, mostly white people, mostly college age or younger, who would go through and just have weeks and weeks and years of videos of like documenting what coming out was like, what getting hormones was like, um, the changes that they're experiencing on testosterone and and all of that. Um, I remember really diving into all of the materials that were available online at that time. And at the same time, trying to figure out within myself and sort of in my relationship how I could exist in this world and, and fully right. be me. Because it was such a challenge at that time to leave my house every day. I mean, it really got to the point where, I us say I felt like a video game character uh-huh. and would leave on full power. And then it'd be like, hey ladies, or where's Chris, have you seen her? You know, and, and my power meter would go down and down mm-hmm. and down. And by the end of the day, I felt like a shell of a person. I would recharge and you know go out into the world and do it again. And it didn't feel like a good way to exist. Yeah.
1: And were you dressing
0: in a in a more masculine way at that time? Always. Yeah. You know, I've always been uh, masculine of center, I'd say. Right. And, uh, you know, when I actually did come out, not much about me changed except my pronouns. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was really like I had been living as myself for a very long time. Uh-huh. Um, it was more the mirror and the reflection of how other people in the world mm. uh, saw me and treated me and responded to me. right.
1: And around this time, you start getting into triathlon though, right? That was when you were in New York?
0: Yeah, that was. You start competing, yep. you know, as a, as a woman.
1: Right? Yeah,
0: so I did do the marathon, uh, worked my way up in uh-huh. New York City races and did a marathon, did an ultra marathon, uh, 60K around Central Park and did not nice. want to do a 50 or yeah. 100 miler. Um, thought, what's the next challenge? And, you know, this going back to the mini strokes is really that mindset of like, how far can I push myself? Um, the training and the racing, mostly the training was a way for me to focus that energy and sort of do what I did when I was a kid of like uh-huh. feeling most like myself in sport. Um, I bought a bike, taught myself how to swim, did my first triathlon and won. But you won your first triathlon? I, I, I won my group. Won, you won your, like your won. age group? Yeah. I, and I, I was too embarrassed like to tell one? people. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, sprint. Too embarrassed to tell people because it was in the women's category. And that was- sort of like a, a moment of saying, okay, like sport, which I love so much and who I am as a person have intersected here and I'm having a real challenge, mm. like a real challenging time talking about it with other people.
1: Yeah, like this boiling point where it's no longer tolerable, tolerable for you to kind of you know manage this
0: duality. Yeah, right? and, and I think with that awareness, it was heightened because then I would be at the starting line of races and, you know, in triathlons, they often separate the waves. And so I'd be in the pink cap with the women standing there and having people look at me, you know, and my inner monologue is they're wondering why I'm here. And I could hear some of them saying, like, why is that person here? And because I Because decided- you just
1: didn't fit the,
0: the mold of a typical woman, what they expected you to look like? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I've always presented masculinely. I've always had that energy about me and, yeah. um, you know, I, people could pick up on it. Right. So when does
1: the decision arise then to, you know, begin a, the transition?
0: Yeah, the the moment was my birthday uh, when I was turning 29. And for years leading up to that, my wife and I would have mm-hmm. a private dinner at home, usually some Thai takeout, um, real low key because- I didn't feel worthy of celebrating. Uh, I didn't feel like I was worthy of people knowing my birthday. And for so many years, I wouldn't tell people, I wouldn't even tell people the month. Like I didn't, I would. we wouldn't talk astrological signs because I didn't want you to figure yeah. out when my birthday was um, because I was just That's so uncomfortable. So it, it is. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it really is sad. And I love my birthday now. And I also celebrate my tea day. So I feel like I get, I'm making up mm-hmm. for it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm doing double celebrating. Um, but I didn't feel like I should be celebrated or people should pay attention to me. And so we had this small private thing that we did. And in New York, we decided to go out to a restaurant on my birthday one year. And we went to this you know, dimly lit, crowded, very loud Mexican restaurant on the Lower East Side. And you know, I could eat the chips and salsa off the table next to me. It was packed tight. The waiter came up and I think that they said, hey, ladies, can I take your order? And I ordered um, and then started to cry. And that to me was shameful. I grew up in a household that was, you know, suck it up. Don't, you know, like, don't cry. Don't be emotional. And was taught to really suppress that. Um, and then as an athlete, it's it's even elevated more where you're not supposed to show pain, mm-hmm. don't show weakness. And well, so- I you had
1: been suppressing it for a long
0: time. For so long. And this was really the breaking point. I mean, it's amazing to think that this one person- saying what they would say to any table, right? And that's what broke me. Mm. Um, I made my way out of the restaurant and spilled out on onto the street, crying on the sidewalk in New York City. New York, nobody cares. So people were right. flying by just and- Just another you know, crying person. Just another crumbled on soul on the broken, sidewalk. Broken, you know, street of dreams out here. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, was, And that's really what it was yeah. and cabs whizzing by. And I mean, it was just like, um, I felt invisible and that's how I wanted to feel. Mm. Um, when we finally got our food and took the trip back home, took it to go, and I mean, this had been 30 minutes or longer than I that I've just been inconsolable. And when I finally could talk, the only thing that I could say was I never thought my life would be like this. Like I couldn't imagine living another year as that person in that body, in this life, having navigated the experiences that I navigated to that point mm-hmm. and having people respond to me in the way that they had been. And that was the no decision thing. of like, I have to do this. And if it means I'm going to lose sport, then that's what it means because it's more important for me to be comfortable in the 95% of my life when I'm not training, yeah. you know, or racing than to hold on to this idea that I could be the athlete that I hoped I could always be as a woman um, or or just face those fears of like, what will my mom say? What will my boss say? And my coworkers and- you know, the 500 students that were living in my building. And, yeah. you know, like I, I felt like a lot of pressure of worrying about other people's expectations. And the great
1: irony, of course, is that when you summon the courage to face all of those things and the fear about not being able to continue to compete as an athlete uh, and and take the action to become a more fully integrated self-actualized person in alignment with how you see yourself in the world, your, your world has exploded. Not only have you been allowed to compete, you've had success that I'm sure you could have never, you know, even predicted at that time.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. It, 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 it really is. And, um, you know, all of that energy that I was putting into hiding who I was, all of that energy that I was putting into worrying about what you would think or what anybody else would think about me, whether it's at the starting line of a race or at my workplace or at home or whatever, all of that energy... I was able to put into being who I truly am. Right. I was able to put that into my racing, into my training and, and you know, eliminate all of those distractions. And it really opened up an entirely new world for me. Yeah, it must've been cathartic. Yeah, and I, it continues to uh-huh. be. I, I, I continue to have moments <clears throat> where um, I'm surprised that this is my life. And in some ways it's because I'm surprised I'm still alive. Yeah. You know, I, I, just in that I didn't have plans for what I would do after graduation, I never saw myself getting married. You know, I never saw myself having a family or, you know, having three amazing bunnies at home or living, you know, like uh-huh. I never saw a future for myself. I never saw success in a workplace or an idea of where I wanted to go. And Well, because you didn't see a model
1: out there that you could mimic, yeah. right? There was no, yeah. there was no precedent and no idea of what that would look like for yourself.
0: Yeah, and so to be in a position where I can be that for younger version Mm -hmm. of me and for other people is really incredible. Yeah,
1: so the transition for you uh, involved basically getting on testosterone, right? And was there, you know, what what? walk me through like, you know, all right, now I'm gonna put on my okay boomer hat, like walk me (laughs) through like what transition means because I know it takes various forms for different people.
0: Yeah. So transition, there's not just one way to transition and there's not just, there's no correct way to transition. Mm -hmm. It looks different for everyone and I am a case study of one. Um, So what my experience looked like was first making a social transition. A social transition can be changing name, pronoun, uh, restrooms that you use, uh, mannerisms, style of dress, things like that. Uh Uh-huh. the second part of a transition may include, and it doesn't have to be second, just different category, is a medical transition. And so that would be maybe gender-affirming surgeries, uh, top surgery, lower surgery, uh, hysterectomy, things like that, mm-hmm. or um, taking testosterone treatment for me or cross-hormone therapy. Um, and, and sometimes like uh, vocal therapy mm-hmm. might fall under that sort of medical um, Right. And then there's a legal transition. So that would be changing legal documents like a driver's license, ID, passport, social security, birth certificate. Um, So those are the three different categories or buckets of transition. And, you know, people's paths look different. Mine was initially, so I think it's important to say I never felt like I was born in the wrong body or trapped in the wrong body. Um, That was not a part of my experience. It is a very valid. Experience for many trans people.
1: Yeah, that seems to be like the sort of catch-all that yeah. you know. I would have thought, like, well, that's that's the that's the experience, right? That's the universal experience. Yeah, but it's not,
0: and it's not. <clears throat> no, it's not. And you know, I think that um, it certainly that was the messages that I got when I was younger about trans people was you're trapped in the wrong body. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was really very specifically. I just did not like my chest. I did not like having breasts, and that was. The one part of me that when I thought about future me as a kid, um, funny story, I had a, a drawing on my closet when I was about eight, nine, 10, 11 years old from a muscle and fitness magazine that was just a torso from like shoulders to yeah. waist of, of, of a dude's six pack. Right. And it was on uh-huh. my closet, like not like lusting over it, but like I'm going to have that. Uh-huh. And that was the vision that I had for myself that I would, that I would have that you know, flat chest and six-pack abs. And well,
1: you got it, buddy. Like,
0: I, <laughs> I do now. It was um, a long road. It was, it was yeah. You made it happen. It was an unconventional right. path. Okay. But yeah, and, you know, so that for me was the first thing. And I thought maybe if I have top surgery, which would be for me, it was a double mastectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe if I did that, that I would not, you know, maybe maybe I would be good there. And I think part of me was dragging my feet and really trying not to, uh, fully commit to transition because I was just worried about existing in the world. Um, so I thought that I could have top surgery, have a flat chest, and I had been binding my chest for about a year and a half before that. When I had the realization that I was trans, um, so a binder is a compression garment, mm-hmm. uh, super tight, and just flattens out, um, flattens out right. the chest, and it was you know incredibly uncomfortable, difficult to breathe in, sweaty and gross, and you know I thought that having top surgery may fix my discomfort with myself. Um, at the same time, I thought maybe I, I would be okay with people saying he sometimes and she sometimes. So I didn't fully commit to a pronoun transition until I had that birthday moment. Uh-huh. Um, and even then it happened in stages for me, You know, first with family and friends, um, other friends and my teammates, and then at work uh, much right. later. And then I started testosterone. Um, after I had top surgery, I realized that I was still not showing up in the world the way that I saw myself. And that was the final step right. for me. And yeah.
1: when you start taking testosterone, how long does it take before you start to see changes?
0: And what is, what is that experience like? Yeah, changes happen slowly over time. And I think it's really funny because the YouTube videos that I had watched, I had known sort of what was going to happen. And so there is this sense of like being so excited about change that you know, I'm like, are my hands getting bigger? Like, right. do I have you know, like, examining for facial hair or uh-huh. or whatever? Um, it took about a year for me to sort of settle into um, how I how I felt on testosterone and sort of start to see the the changes, uh-huh. um, which you know you can see in comparison photos, but I wasn't seeing every day because. You know, I'm seeing myself every day.
1: and And I'm sure there's a there's like an emotional transition of you know acclimating to these changes, you know. Uh, and also, what was it like, like, did you experience differences in in like how you felt in your body? Like, did your energy change? or like how, you know what is it? I mean, it, I, I'm trying to imagine that experience. Yeah,
0: it felt it felt very different in my skin. and I think part of it was in March, I had top surgery. And then had the recovery from that, so uh-huh. you know, when I could finally lift my arms and move around, it was mid April and then June was when I started testosterone, so I was already in this new body, sort of trying to figure things out when I started testosterone, it wasn't like the next day people started calling me he" all the time, right. you know, so that was a challenging yeah. thing of like I felt like you know that wasn't day one, but it was day one of testosterone of like really starting the changes for me, and so it was significant, but to that point, for years, people were calling me he sometimes and she sometimes. And you know, I, over time, I realized that I was becoming increasingly more comfortable with the he and increasingly yeah. uncomfortable with people saying she or not knowing. And you know, I wanted to make that shift, but in those first couple of months, it wasn't automatic. And so then there was something that I did and that I think a lot of trans people did or, and do is like, what am I doing wrong? to make you not see me the way that I see myself. So there was a lot of self-criticism mm. and critique and trying to figure out how to show up in the world in a way that would allow you to call me he. Mm. So I think it was an interesting thing of like, not just- So you're, you're taking
1: responsibility for that rather than like, I'm demanding that you call me by this proton- pronoun.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I did that and I did demand people and you know, I had great allies who helped me because it's really uncomfortable to correct other people uh-huh. consistently about my pronoun for me, you know, to show up and say like, um, actually Rich, it's, it's he, right? Like uh-huh. that is, I'm doing something wrong for you not to see me in that way. Uh-huh. And that's the way that I expressed that and, and took that. So I had a really hard time navigating that period of time where I felt like I was becoming more of myself and people weren't quite there with me. And so it was a lot of like, you know, how, I think it caused a social transition for me in a way that I backed down from later on. So what I mean by that is um, I knew what was going to happen physically. I had a sense of what it would might, might be like to come out at work and with my family. And the thing that people didn't talk about was male privilege and what it would be like to show up in the world as a man. Uh-huh. And what people um, look to for masculinity and in sort of, There's a a right way and a wrong way to express masculinity or uh, there's, uh, I think particularly in sports, right? We preference a certain type of masculinity um, even within cisgender men. And so I was trying to figure out like, I don't think I went hyper-masculine and I, I, I didn't start to show up like that, but I you think to, I wasn't You had, you had to try
1: authentic. on a bunch of dude hats to figure out which kind of dude you were gonna be. Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. thank okay. you for articulating yeah. that in that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was really it, you know, I it was like- I dumbed
1: it down to like-
0: Yeah, I I, mean, but, I think that really was it, that that for so long I had well, been-
1: Well, man isn't one thing, right? You know, in that idea, like the idea, well, like you would, you would project it into the future, like I wanna be male, I wanna be a man, but maybe hadn't figured
0: out what what that meant specifically like what kind of man
1: yeah, suited you is and, that what you're
0: saying yeah and i yeah. think that it was that i it wasn't even that i was like i want to be a man and that there's this image of man right it was like i want to feel more like myself right and okay. i want people to see me as me mm-hmm. and and i found that that over time that um saying he and and Existing in male spaces was more comfortable. Right, I got you. Yeah.
1: Okay. So as this is going on, um, you're still training for triathlons and all of that, right? And yeah. there's probably a lot of paperwork you're, you're, you got to fill
0: out. Yeah. Right. To like make this transition complete. Yeah. So initially, it was um, pretty easy but painful to make the transition of categories in both running and triathlon. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like. Me contacting organizations because there weren't no policies in place at that time. So I would write to somebody <clears> and say, I'm transgender, I want I've been competing as female. I want to compete as male. How do I do it? And you're like, be, well, I don't know. We've never we've never dealt with this, right? Yes. Yeah, so let me forward yeah. your message on to eight of my <laughs> colleagues who will then forward it on to more of their folks. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, by the end of the chain, it was forty people looped in on my, you know, like me being out, right? right. So When I, when I, and this was at a time when I didn't feel comfortable being fully out with a lot of people, so trying to figure out the policies will I be able to compete and, um, you know, how will I continue to fit in sports was that was difficult, right? So, So. what was
1: the first race that you competed in as
0: a male? It was Ironman, Arizona. Oh, Ironman, wow, sorry, Ironman, Florida, yeah, Uh Ironman, Florida, and it was my first Ironman, it was my first time running outside without a shirt on, um, like from the Wet, you know, with the wetsuit off, yeah. um, it, was a, it was a very big race.
1: Yeah,
0: and so how did that feel to do that? I, I mean, it felt incredible, uh, I was very well trained for it, I thought, Iron Man, uh-huh. anything can happen, right? Yeah, um, well, I'll, you
1: trained for an Iron, were you living in Manhattan at that time? I was, or? yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, Where do you ride your bike? Like just in the, in the park or up Route 9 across the bridge? Both, or? yeah, mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Yeah. and I was very close to Central Park, so. Yeah. Lots of laps. And that lots that of,
1: Peloton in Central Park during the summer where they close the roads. Wild. I mean, that's you're playing with your life with that thing.
0: Yeah, not, not so much at that time. Yeah. I think uh, now maybe, but yeah. So, and, and a lot of trainer stuff too, a mm-hmm. lot of indoor trainer work. Um, you know, in that race, I, I had this perspective of, I chose to do this. And not only did I choose to do this, to suffer in this race, uh, I also paid a lot of money to do it, right? Yeah. And I was there voluntarily. When things got hard on the run, what I kept going back to was living my life every day as a trans person is so much harder than what I'm doing right now, and that was the perspective that sort of guided me and you know Mm -hmm. maybe be present in that race. You know, when I finished the race, I crossed the finish line. You know, first Ironman, first race as a man, um, and the volunteer who was giving me the medal said. Congratulations! You are an Iron Woman. Oh no! And Gave me the medal. Way to like rain on the parade, and it was devastating at the time. Um, clearly, I still use it as a. As I didn't a story. even know.
1: Was it Mike Riley who said that? Like
0: no, I, no, it was a volunteer who was giving oh, me. Okay, yeah, Mike Riley called you the know, name male out. Male or female, you are an Iron
1: Man. Is the that's the phrase? Yeah,
0: yeah. 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 And I, I think I didn't even see that coming. Um, for me, that was a real moment of being like, I just did. The hardest race of my life i've been running out here, you know working out for eleven and a half hours, and this is what you know I've met with for this accomplishment mm-hmm. um, but it was probably the first moment also that I let myself have one minute to be upset about it and then said that's that's on them that's not about me right and that was a real turning point for me, I think because it it symbolized my focus um you know. I wasn't going to internalize other people's shit anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a,
1: that's a strong move, you know? And I think, you know, that, that epiphany that, um, that as hard as Iron Man is, it's not as hard as living your life, you know, in, in the skin of someone else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as hard as being a closeted, transgendered person is a pretty powerful epiphany that I would imagine, you know, was kind of a brick in a, you know, an early brick in that wall of, of realizing that, you know, at some point you were gonna be an advocate for change.
0: Yeah, and at first before that was knocking down all of the walls that I'd already created uh-huh. for so many years. And I think that was an early part of gaining that confidence back of, I was such a confident young kid. And I look back on that and think about those middle years and it's really sad to me. Like I was just such a confident and outgoing young person. And then I started to get these messages that who I was was wrong. And mm-hmm. I started to not change who I was, but suppress and, and remove. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, having that moment of being confident enough to say, other people have their own stuff and how they see me is none of my business. Um, that was a big first step to say. Free, maybe it's freedom. Incredibly freeing. Yeah. and And maybe- maybe I might have the strength to be that public person who doesn't exist right now.
1: Uh Up to that point, had you had the opportunity to meet any other trans athletes? No. Wow. And living in New York. Yeah. Still. Yeah. And no, you know, I know we're gonna talk about the website that that you've created, but prior to that, like no online resource for people that were going through what you were going through and wanted to be athletic. Yeah, nothing. Community
0: no community, nothing on YouTube, nothing online in terms of resources, no policies that I could find that were Uh applicable to me. So, I really felt like I was, you know, back to being in high school isolated and alone. Yeah.
1: Well, there's a difference between completing an Ironman and making six Team USAs, right? It's six, right? Yeah, it's six. So, you made five- national teams as basically an ITU triathlete or duathlete. Right? Do duathlete, do, yeah. Uh, were all of those in duathlon? And then one in triathlon. In triathlon, right. Yeah. So how do you jump from you know, Ironman Arizona or Ironman Florida into becoming this elite ITU triathlete?
0: Well, I think for me, it was really um, that I don't like cold water, first of all. Uh-huh. Taught myself how to swim, yeah. second of swim all. Swim super short. Yeah, uh, for, for the tries. But yeah. for duathlon, there's no swim. Right. So, duathlon is run, bike, run. Yeah. And, you know, it was something that could totally bypass the, all of the discomfort that I felt in triathlon, which happened at the pool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I started before my transition. I would be presenting masculinely, you know, looking essentially like I do now, going to the pool, having to use a women's restroom because mm-hmm. there's only two ways to the pool. It's either through the men's locker room or the, the women's locker room. So having to use the facilities, get myself to the pool in a right. women's swimsuit, and you know what that did for me and my soul was not healthy. Right. That's interesting. So even let's so just I, get
1: rid of all that. Dispense with the swimming. <laughs> well,
0: part of it yeah. was also that I just I realized very quickly that I was much better at it than uh-huh. I was at triathlon. Triathlon was fun because it was all new things, yeah. right? And and the, a whole new learning curve and community and things to get to know. I mean, you can really geek out about it. Yeah. For duathlon, when we were warming up for the tri-season in New York, there were March and April duathlons. And that's really how I, you know, dipped my toe in and realized I'm just a better runner than I am a swimmer. Right. And I could maybe be competitive at this. I remember
1: in the early days of triathlon dating back to maybe, you know, mid 80s, early 80s. When it was all neon and you know Oakley's and all of that, and everyone was doing it in their speedo, yep. that duathlon kind of stood on equal ground with triathlon, and there were duathlon stars that you would you would read about in the triathlon magazines, like who's the guy with the long hair Kenny Souza? do you remember these like see I'm older than you, but like yeah. go back into the history, and there were like there was i think it was, i think it I think it was Kenny Souza if I'm remembering correctly, but there were a couple of guys like just like long manes of hair and like lots of neon and and duathlon was, you know, it got a lot of print. And at mm-hmm. some point, you know, triathlon kind of took over and became, you know, what it is. And duathlon continued to coexist, but didn't quite, you know, it kind of became a smaller subculture, you know, in the Venn
0: diagram of multi-sport. Yeah, it was certainly in that smaller subculture part by the time I had made it in. Um, I do remember seeing uh, like, like beer companies sponsored race series for duathlon and and it was really a big thing. But uh, for me, it just started off as a fun way to warm up for triathlon and then, you know, realizing that there was some potential there.
1: Right. So how long before you dip your toe into duathlon before you're like
0: making these national teams and, you know, competing at the elite level? Um, You know, I think that it was uh, a couple of years actually, I'm trying to think when I first started AF on 2015 was the first, uh, national team that I made and I wanted to compete in the national Mm. championship in 2014 and didn't get clearance in time. So I basically had a a full year, um, clearance being, uh, therapeutic use exemption for, for taking testosterone.
1: Yeah. For the testosterone so that you can get around the
0: doping kind of aspect of the whole thing. Yep. And so uh, in that process, you know, trying to navigate that as a first time person with no resources uh, found challenging and it didn't happen in 2014. So I basically had a full year of saying, "This is my goal, and uh-huh. I know what I want to do. And you know, it became in that year not just a goal for me as an athlete, as a, that'd be an amazing mm. experience, but also as, wow, what might the significance of this be? for the trans community, for the LGBTQ plus sports community.
1: Right. Well, welcome to 2016 and you're met with that opportunity, right? So you begin your transition in 2010, 2016, you make Team USA and you've got a berth on um, the duathlon squad that's going to compete in Spain at the world championships, which is like an incredible achievement for any athlete, you know, like let alone the fact that, that you know, you, I mean, essentially, you know, genetically female and then transition to male and are competing with the top two athletes in America and you make team USA. It's like an extraordinary achievement, it's incredible. Um, and now you have your moment, your opportunity because the IOC is in flux in terms of where it stands with respect to transgender athletes at that time, right? And you have this opportunity to kind of insert yourself into the comment period around how these regulations are gonna get resolved regarding, you know, the permissiveness of someone like yourself to be able to compete. So, you know, talk me through that.
0: Yeah, the race was in spring, I believe, for qualifying for Team USA. And as soon as I qualified... I knew that I would not be allowed to compete internationally based on the policies in place with the International Olympic Committee.
1: So the IOC at that time, what was the, what was the rule
0: of law? So the rule was um, a two-year wait period for hormones as well as a full lower surgery. So uh, internal and external genital uh-huh. modification in mm-hmm. order to compete in sports. And I knew right away in making Team USA that I would challenge the policy uh, because I don't feel like someone needs to modify their body in order to fully be themselves or to be a better athlete. Um, so that was not part of, mm-hmm. of my story of my transition. And I you know, was prepared to challenge them on that to say it's a human rights violation. Like no one should have to modify their body in order to participate in sport.
1: Right. And and the two-year thing, like it's one year now, right? Yeah. So, yeah.
0: so it, it was sort of this perfect storm of events. I made Team USA and the very next day, Shot off emails to ITU, to USA Triathlon, to IOC to try to figure out, will I be able to compete? And didn't get messages back and consistently was trying to make contact. At the same time, I was then featured in uh, ESPN magazine for the first time mm-hmm. in a profile that came out about me being a trans athlete. And the that, profile- Was that prior to the body issue thing? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. We'll get um, to that. <laughs> yeah. So um, in talking to the reporter, you know, it became- half a profile about me as an athlete and as a trans person, and then half a sort of criticism of this policy and how they wouldn't get contact back to ESPN. And, you know, so it was this really great um, highlight of how horrible of a policy it was, how it didn't make sense, how it was not applicable in my case. And that was really, when that article was published, no no joke, within two weeks, we had contact with Mm -hmm. the IOC to talk about this. Uh, because it really painted them as no one had any clue what they were doing at mm-hmm. that time.
1: Yeah, they were making decisions, but without the best facts. Right.
0: right, right.
1: And and from what I understand, they then entertained testimony from a variety of new experts on the subject that, mm-hmm. that changed their minds on this.
0: Yeah, and so they had this meeting after the ESPN article came out and uh, made a decision to change the policy to remove the uh, surgery requirement. And then to change the hormone requirement from two years to one year for transgender women, uh-huh. which would mean one year of their hormone level being within a typical cisgender female range, and then totally eliminate <clears throat> the hormone requirement for transgender men. Right.
1: So basically, you know, an argument can be made that, that your example, I mean, you in many ways single-handedly, you know, make, helped make this change happen.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, crazy. they really needed, I think, a name and a face of a person who was uh-huh. it was impacting to say, all right, let's actually think about what this means.
1: And the TUE testosterone thing, just, just for clarity for people who are listening, you're taking testosterone and the TUE, the therapeutic use exemption, basically dictates that, yes, you can take testosterone, but it has to fall within the range of, like you said, like a cisgendered male. So it can't be used to enhance performance by exceeding what a normal kind of testosterone threshold would be for a typical male athlete.
0: Right. And so, how do
1: they figure out what that range is?
0: Well, the range is huge for testosterone for men. The range is, is huge. And so um, I'm not sure what the benchmark is for those numbers, but they have set numbers and I have to do regular blood work to make sure that I'm within those... Ranges at all time, and that I can be tested at any time uh-huh. to to get my levels right.
1: So you get permission to compete, you get to compete, and then you go on to make you know a bunch more of these teams over the years, and then you become this race walker. Yeah. Now we don't even know what's going to happen. <laughs> You're going to you know <laughs> s- stick around for another Olympiad. Maybe we'll have our first Olympian,
0: transgender, perhaps out transgendered athlete. Perhaps um, you know I think it. It was really cool to make this switch. So I made uh, the team for 2020 in Mm -hmm. duathlon in April and then decided to switch over just because I had this opportunity to potentially make the Olympic trials. And that's really how it was set up. My friend Pablo Gomez uh, trains with me in Chicago, and he is the number five race walker Mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. And little to my knowledge at that time, he was really trying to recruit anyone but he told me that he <laughs> thought need, I would I be good. We need more bodies
1: in this sport.
0: Yeah, he thought that I would be good. And, <laughs> yeah. and that was really all it took to, uh-huh. um, t- to motivate me to give it a shot. And it was such a cool experience because as an adult, you know, when was the last time that you were a beginner at something? Yeah. When was the last time, you know, something that you do all the time that you show up and see it with fresh eyes?
1: When was the last time you were a beginner at something and then suddenly not a beginner?
0: Right, right, yeah. (laughs) In your case. Yeah, and I really love the process though. I Uh, love the process of figuring things out and there's so much to figure out in racewalking with the form and the way that the races are structured and how the points work. You know, it wasn't like I was going to show up at the Olympic trials and make the Olympic team unless I posted a 350 or faster, which no one at the race did. Uh Uh-huh it's all based on points from, from here on out. So right. I never went into that going, I'm going to be the first Olympian. And I've said this for you know the years that I've been out that when we have our first Olympian, I will feel as proud as if I was actually there because mm. you know I've, I've worked so hard to open these doors. But duathlon is not an Olympic sport. So there was never right. a shot and triathlon is totally out of the question. So this was just an opportunity to really- take that next step of making the trials, of mm-hmm. opening that door.
1: And now, are you the first out transgendered athlete to
0: compete in an Olympic trials? Not in the Olympic trials, but in the gender with which they identify, yes. So in 2012 and 16, I believe, or maybe it's 8 and 12, uh, there was an athlete named Keelan Godzi who is a trans man who competed with women in the Olympic trials, Okay, um, he made a social transition, he, him pronouns, and his name is uh, Keelan, but he- But not, a medical, not, not no medical transition. No medical transition, gotcha. which, which okay. then puts him in the position to compete with women. All right. It gets confusing. Yeah, and I think you know, it really does. And, and there's so much confusion and lack of education around just not even transgender athletes, which is complicated because the categories are so different and the levels mm-hmm. of play are so different, but even just a general understanding of what it means to be transgender-
1: Right, and in preparation for this, I mean, you started this this website, Transathlete, to kind of rectify this among mm-hmm. and, and be a place for, you know, people who were in your situation to go to. Um, and I was looking through it and you have a whole tab on terms and it's basically a glossary, yep. you know, and I, I feel like I know a little bit about this and I was like, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Like there's so much to learn and it isn't, I mean, we like to think of it as a very binary thing or a mm-hmm. black and white thing. And it, it's very much not that.
0: Yeah. And sport is very binary. And that is where it becomes a problem, right? Because our yeah. world is increasingly not. Yeah. More and more young people identify as something other than totally straight or cisgender. Um, you know, they're they're in flux. Their identity is fluid more than ever.
1: Yeah. That makes a trick. That makes it really hard. Yeah. So yeah. um, we're, this is a Good point to kind of like launch into the advocacy aspect of what you do. Because I think it's one thing for a transgender male like yourself to, um, you know, compete against other men, distinguish yourself admirably. Like that's something that we can all celebrate. It's more fraught with um, controversy to be a transgender female competing against females because Mm -hmm. we have this tension between fairness and inclusion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is, you know, what I learned preparing to talk to Kendra is a much more nuanced issue than I previously thought. Yeah. But I still think, you know, we we haven't figured out, you know, a fantastic way of trying to resolve these increasingly, you know, more and more pressing problems around this.
0: Yeah, the funny thing is we have figured it out. We have. Okay. You know, see, here's I want to so, be edified, so yeah, no, please so, educate me. Here's my perspective on this, right? We have figured it out just the way the narrative around it is not accurate. Uh, we live in a time right now where anyone can tweet anything out and people will see it and take it as fact. And then, you know, the responsibility of the person who is it's affecting to defend or refute that statement. You know, is, is a challenge because uh-huh. um, people don't read the apologies. They don't read the corrections. They read the headline, take it as fact, right. and move on. And what we've seen is that a lot of people have created these false narratives around transgender people and trans athletes. And you know, we've been able to compete in the, in the Olympics since 2010. Since 2010, there have been zero transgender Olympians. Right? We are not dominating in sport mm-hmm. at the highest levels. Over 25 states have policies in place right now at the high school level that say that trans athletes can compete in the gender with which they identify. We are not seeing high school transgender athletes dominating across the board in sport. And so, you know, we have been participating. We have been participating with our peers in in the category that aligns with our gender, and it's been working fine. Uh Walk
1: me through... The uh, I mean, the, the sort of example that gets raised all the time is in transgendered women competing in, in combat sports, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have mm-hmm. like an MMA fighter or boxing or something where, you know, physical harm is a, is a reality and you take a, an athlete who has lived, you know, the majority of their life as a male and then has a medical transition to female, to what extent is that individual still living with the musculature and the bone density and all the like um, that gets associated with their male upbringing and then taking that into the ring and and you know potentially creating a fairness issue and also a physical harm issue to their fellow competitor like yes. this is this is the this is like kind of like where the the battle lines are being drawn I suppose so yeah yep. talk me through this and I think
0: Combat sports and powerlifting are the two
1: areas right. that we're seeing. I saw a like a Vice there. documentary about powerlifters on that. I don't know if you saw it, transgender powerlifters.
0: Do you see that? Yeah, I don't think super I super interesting.
1: I learned a lot. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah,
0: so I think that what what we're doing though is we're working in broad generalizations of, you know, when people are thinking about that person stepping into the ring, that they're thinking about uh, six foot four, you know, X Military SEAL, right? Mm-hmm. Like going into fighting some five-two woman, and it and it just doesn't work like that in that sport because it's weight based and classification, right? They're evenly matched. Uh, what we've seen is that for transgender women after their one year of cross hormone therapy, that they are on the same competitive level as their female peers, and so we haven't we haven't seen a case of somebody coming in and dominating uh-huh. in combat sports. Um, There was one MMA fighter, Fallon Fox, who she was not undefeated. She did not dominate in the ring. And she's often used as the example of, you know, why this is not okay. Uh Um, She was forced out of the sport because she couldn't get matches anymore because of all of the discrimination that she faced, not only as a transgender woman, but as a woman of color. Mm. And all of that Mm -hmm. sort of plays into how people are being treated. But you can
1: imagine a scenario like let's say you did ha- like some guy comes out of the Navy SEALs, you know, just a, basically a beast and and specifically trained to be a killer or whatever decides to become you know, to, to transition into being a woman enters the ring, you know, in some kind of combat sport. Like, do, do you not see like that that could potentially raise an issue or do you think that this is all like a, you know, this can all be managed?
0: You know, I certainly think that in that scenario, I mean, that is an extreme, right. extreme like, case. Right, but like, that's sort of, to do a, thought, of a thought experiment, you have mm-hmm. to like
1: play in the extremes to see what could potentially happen.
0: Right, and you know, people are like, well, what if seven foot one NBA player transitions and wants to go play in the WNBA, right? And, right. And there's all these what ifs, and these situations just aren't happening. And we're talking about the extreme outskirts of the already elite. Uh-huh when we're talking about these situations. So, I mean, if something like that came up, of course I would look at that and probably have some thoughts about it, but it's just simply not happening.
1: Right, so in other words, in the fairness versus inclusion, you know, conversation, it's not a matter of tipping the scales towards inclusion over fairness. You're thinking that these things can coexist and that it's not problematic. Absolutely,
0: and I think transgender women and girls have been competing with women and girls for years without problem with their peers and they've been participating on sports teams at the at the high school level at the elite level and there has been no problems hmm. right and i think that what the discrimination against transgender women and girls actually does is takes away from the real issue about the disparity in sport and the gender gender inequity that exists in sport um, what we really should be focusing on is women's sports and how we uplift women's sports. And, you know, I think that targeting transgender women does not do that. It doesn't help. The real problem is the the lack of access, the lack of resources, the pay inequity that exists within women's sports because of systemic discrimination.
1: Yeah. Well, certainly that's that's for real. You know, I've just put up a couple podcasts that kind of go pretty deep into that. I mm-hmm. mean, that's a huge problem. But in the track and field context, are there transgendered women who are, you know, killing it, competing no. against, there aren't. Tell me, tell me yeah. what killing it I don't know, I mean I, I mean, I sh- I didn't so- do any research on this, so <laughs> I actually don't know. So, track yeah. and
0: field is the one area that, you know, when people are talking about this across the country, they're looking at two transgender girls in Connecticut who are high school student athletes who last year went one-two at state. Uh-huh. Um, when we're talking about dominating, when they went to nationals, one didn't even compete and the other placed 30th and 31st in her two races. Okay. And so, you know, yes, they have won races, but dominating is inaccurate. Right. And, and I think that, you know, people really pick up on those stories. And these are two young black women. And, you know, I, I bring up race again because race is absolutely a part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, being a transgender woman is absolutely a part of this. Women in sports, both cisgender and trans, have had their bodies policed for years, for decades. And it's by targeting transgender women and, and focusing on people's bodies, I think that we really perpetuate that issue within women's sports. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the, the you know, what happens in track and field, I mean, the, the, the case study that gets brought up conflates intersex, because it's all about castor Semenya, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And whether or not she should be allowed to compete. And that brings up a, a different you know, kind of ripple in the you know, fairness versus inclusion conversation because this is a human being who was just born a certain way. You right. know? And so should she be unable to compete and penalized because this is how the universe or God or whatever you wanna call it made her mm-hmm. in a certain way? Um, I can't you know, proclaim to have the answer to that, but it's an interesting you know,
0: conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important that we th- that we remember that there's not just, there's not one way to be a man. There's not just one way to be a woman. And there are certainly categories that they have for hormones at the elite level of testing, right? Uh, but there's not just one way to be a trans mm-hmm. person either. And there's not just one way to have a body that excels in sport. So the body that a swimmer would have is going to be different than what would be helpful for an elite sprinter yeah, of course. Or, or a rower. You know, so when we make these Generalizations about trans women dominating in sport, or someone like Castor Semenya, you know, having her makeup being able to dominate in sport, I think that we reach real dangerous territory. Mm. Yeah, you know, she found the sport that is that is great for her, well, and she is no also question a, about that a gifted yeah. athlete. And it's, but it's so interesting that because she is a black woman, because she is more masculine presenting. Uh, that, that she has been targeted in a way that other athletes have not. Mm-hmm. Other incredible female athletes like Katie Ledecky, mm-hmm. who beat people in Rio by an entire pool length, not yeah, even on the I same mean, TV the screen. The most
1: dominant you know, absolutely
0: s- swimmer you can imagine. Has not been questioned about her gender. And to my knowledge, has not been tested uh, for her hormone levels and things like that. And I, don't, and I don't think that she should be. And I don't think any athlete should be. You know, because that's a real step back. For years, women in the Olympics were tested. They were gender tested, sex tested, really. Uh-huh. Um, but there were these things called naked parades where female athletes would have to strip down nude and parade themselves in front of a panel of judges so that they could be visually inspected along with having gynecological exams and, and oh, other really? things like that. I didn't know that. In order to, to make sure that they were actually a woman.
1: Yeah, well, on the Katie Ledecky you know, caster sort of um, rubric, you know, it it brings up a broader conversation about what should be considered an illegal performance enhancer in general, right? There There are exogenous substances that any athlete can take that are gonna enhance performance. Um, and we can talk about testosterone in a moment, um, but you know, Michael Phelps has a crazy wingspan and giant feet, and Castor you know, is who she is, and Katie is who she is. Uh, and you know, if somebody is born with you know a very high level of testosterone, and that's just how their body functions, you know, at what point does that become an unfair competitive advantage versus just a a competitive advantage, right? Where do we draw the line between something that is exogenous and something that is, you know, indigenous to that to that individual? And I think with respect to um, um, trans women athletes, they do police testosterone levels, right? Like they have mm-hmm. to be within a certain, you know, range mm-hmm. in order for them to get permission to compete against other women. Is that how it works?
0: Yes, yeah. and, and they're not testing cisgender athletes and nor should they. I don't think athletes should be tested in that way, um, but it, it is a different situation for transgender women. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's going it's, it's to get even more complicated when you know we start seeing genetic modifications and CRISPR and all of that. Yeah, my my, my brain—it's <laughs> complicated even, now. can't like, even do it. I don't know how you're going to be able to, you know, figure out what's fair and what's not at that point, but.
0: Well, and that's the thing. I think that we are all just trying our best for the most part. There are certainly lawmakers out there, policymakers, who have never spoken to a transgender athlete, Mm -hmm. who lack the education and understanding about what it actually means to be trans and transition, and are making policies that impact our ability to participate with our peers. I think that it is incredibly complicated, even as an advocate, for me to talk about because— At the high school level, I believe the policy should be different than at the college or the elite level Uh of participation in play. And so to break down the different categories, you know, it it becomes incredibly complicated.
1: Yeah, well, I wanna get into some of your advocacy around, you know, the shifting regulatory landscape here, but when did you first realize that that you kind of had a voice in this movement and that you were gonna shoulder
0: that responsibility? it may have been as early as my first decision to come out publicly which was 2010 after that ironman race i wrote an article for the advocate and you know to hit send on that article uh-huh. made me realize that this is something i'll never be able to to go back from mm. and having the opportunity to be in the new york times in 2011 i had done the new york city triathlon as female in 2009 and then as male in 2011. Uh, has anyone like, else done that? No, I was, really? <laughs> uh, maybe maybe after, but I was yeah. the first that they knew of. Um, and that's the thing with all of this is like first known. I'm mm, the first right. known out right. trans athlete. Um, but I think that that was the moment where I, I decided like I am going to put myself out there. And most of it is to be who I needed when I was younger. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of your mantra, right? Be the person that you needed you know, when you are a young person.
0: Yeah, and I think also somebody said to me since the Times article came out recently that you know, I, it's, I say that a lot and that's a really important thing for me because I get messages all the time from young trans kids but mm-hmm. also from their parents and it's just so incredibly impactful to be able to see the impact of being a role model um, even if I'm not reaching everybody, right, of, of the people who are seeing me are being really moved by it and, mm-hmm. and it's changing their lives. Um, somebody said to me recently, you know, not just I'm not just being the person I needed when I was younger, but I'm being the person that young people today need to see. Yeah. Whether they're trans or cis, it, it doesn't matter that, that more people need to know that trans people exist, that we can live happy, authentic, safe, successful lives, and that we are here
1: and that yeah basically that mainstream culture and society can see you thriving and doing well and and you know kind of um you know as 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 a healthy individual in the world mm-hmm. as as kind of this lighthouse you know irrespective of whether you know that person reading that or seeing that ha- has anybody who's trans in their you know inner circle or not mm-hmm. just that alone i think is a powerful thing because it's one thing to be you know uh, profiled in the advocate or an out magazine or any of these, you know, kind of, you know, publications of that world. But mm-hmm. it's another thing altogether to have like this big profile in the New York times, right. You know, and that's, that's the transition from you being a mouthpiece and a spokesperson amongst your community to being kind of this beacon that exists in culture at large.
0: Yeah. And then I started to seek that out when I saw that that was an opportunity that that was, um, an option for me. Mm -hmm. I really started to seek out opportunities to be that person. It's funny, going through my emails recently, like way, way back, cleaning out the inbox, I found some that I was writing to my friends who were authors and and writers at publications saying, if you're ever doing a story about transgender athletes, please contact me. I'm trying to position myself as an expert. And so it was really something that I had planned to, when I created the website, you know, as a resource that sort of gave me more opportunities to speak and to you know, be someone that people would go to for information. And I really tried to set it up so that I could be that person that just didn't exist in the world at that time.
1: How did the ESPN uh, body
0: issue happen for you? That was like 2016, right? Yeah. So in the first ESPN article I had mentioned to the author, you know, Hey, if you're picking people for the body issue, I'd love to do it. Right. And she said, oh, that's You're funny. You're like making it
1: happen. You're making moves,
0: power moves, you <laughs> it, know? You know, it's, that's That's funny. a heat check. It was, it yeah. was. <laughs> um, I think, I, you know, I think after it left my mouth, I was like, uh-huh. what did I just do? Uh, because she said that her editor was actually the editor of that issue and that she would mm. pass it along. And I didn't really think much about it afterwards, but in February, I got a call to ask if I would be in it and, uh, you know, instantly said yes. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, this is a nude shoot, right? Like this is totally naked. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. They're like, no, no Photoshopping, like no clothes. And I was like, yeah, I'm in, like, let's Uh do it. Um, For so long, I was so insecure about being myself and about existing in this world. And I thought, what an amazing opportunity. Like my body is my machine. I work very hard on it. And also I think it's great for people to see a trans person in this issue. So Mm -hmm. it was just a- a great opportunity. Yeah, and you look great. You were ripped. Yeah. You know. Thanks.
1: And I think it's
0: you know, look, that's a that's
1: that's you know, the image. I mean, you know, the symbology of that like is super powerful. And to see, you know, the scars and 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 all of that, you know, all of it, mm-hmm. you know, and to see how you present physically in that form as an elite athlete. Like it, it that was a big deal, man.
0: Yeah. You there know? was a lot around that because so often trans people are reduced to their bodies. Right? When we're talking about how people show up in sport and and the fetishization of trans people in mm-hmm. general, it's, it's all about our bodies. That's what people are interested in when they're talking about transition and surgeries and what's in my pants and so on, right? And it was really empowering to be able to put myself out there. But the pushback that I got from some people was that it was an inaccurate or um, unattainable representation of being trans, which I thought was really interesting because – you know, my body is not everyone's body and there's no wrong way to have a body, but my body is trained through, you know, 20 plus hours yeah. of training a week. Well, and the body and,
1: issue is about inspiration and aspiration. Right. You know, you're not yeah. you're not there to, you know, present the every man or every woman version of that. Right, right. And I think some
0: people really got yeah. wrapped into that because it was a trans body. Um, but mm. I think the inspiration and aspiration piece, I mean, you're, you're spot on there, like- when i'm talking i'm always saying that i don't want my story to be inspirational i want it to be aspirational i want people to see me and even if they're not an athlete be compelled to go and be more authentically themselves in this mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and and not feel like they have to give up their passions in order to do so
1: the tectonic plates of law are shifting rapidly and you're a very you know you're very outspoken on on twitter and through your various channels about what's happening right now Um, I think we have eight state bills at the moment that are attempting to prevent um, transgender kids from competing in in high school sports. Is that correct? Or recreational sports? Just over nine now. Nine. We've got this law in South Dakota, SDHB 1057, that you've been talking a lot about that would make it a crime to provide uh, puberty blockers to- um, transgender or, or uh, aspiring transgender minors, mm-hmm. right? Is that correct for Tra- Trans youth. Yep. Trans youth. Yep. There's a law in Arizona. There's certain things going on with the Supreme Court right now, making it potentially legal to fire workers who are LGBTQ plus, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Utah, the ACLU is involved in all of this. Like walk me through the legal landscape. What's happening now? First, maybe it... You know, at altitude, and then we can drill down on some of these laws and, and, you know, what you you see is happening.
0: Yeah, so I think it's important to say, first of all, at the high school level, uh, I believe it's something like 17 states have fully inclusive policies where there are no hoops to jump through for transgender high school student athletes. They say who they are, and they get to compete on that team and there are several other states probably up to the total count being 35 states in total that allow trans people to, to participate in some capacity even if they have some sort of um you know check system or someone mm-hmm. has to make a decision
1: it's weird that there's laws at all i wouldn't even think that there would be laws like just whatever you want to do go do go play sports man. so they're not laws yeah.
0: so they are in each of these states they're made by the high school state athletic association I see. Which is why there are several states that have no policy at all, and then there are states like Texas and Indiana that require student athletes to participate according to their birth certificate. Mm. And so we have this whole range across the fifty states of being super inclusive and no problems, and then not being able to participate at all. Mm. I would imagine it breaks down between red and blue. It does, and it doesn't. There are mm. some there are some surprising you know moments of, in between. But what we are seeing right now is state lawmakers in different states are trying to make house bills or have presented house bills to have the government regulate what happens in high school sports. So there are states that have had policies, like Washington State, for example, was one of the first states to create a policy for transgender student athletes in the early, say, 2010 to 2012 time period. They've been existing with no problems in their state whatsoever, and that that law says what? Uh, that's their policy. Their the policy. high school state association policy says if you're if you are a transgender student athlete, you say what your gender is. You can compete with the, that Got gender. It. Got it. Without question, and there's no switching back and forth. That doesn't happen. You know, people are. I am a trans man. I want to compete with boys and men, and that's how they compete. And there's no there's no hoops to jump through. Washington is one of the states now where government has stepped in and said. We don't, we don't want transgender girls competing with girls. And some of the bills don't say girls specifically, but that's essentially what it is because no one's really worried about the trans boy competing with boys. Mm-hmm. You know, when, right. when, when they're bringing up the sort of narrative that they're presenting is, is all about transgender girls. And so there are now nine states that have these bills on the table mm. to try to prevent at the government level what has already been working in the high school level. Yeah. Well,
1: I suppose, I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of fear mongering around all of that. The possibility does exist that some kid, you know, who weighs 250 pounds could decide, okay, I now just, you know, as a prank or as a, you know, social experiment to say, I identify as female and I'm
0: gonna go play, you know, girls basketball or whatever, right? This is a broad sweeping generalization. Yeah. I think that's really what the uh, people who are presenting these bills are relying on, right? Is like this idea that it's, it's not just the fear of a transgender girl competing with girls. The way that they're framing it is that they don't want a boy to be competing with girls. So first of all, there are policies in place that prevent boys and men from playing girls and women's sports, mm-hmm. right? So we're not seeing someone who is a boy trying to compete with girls. And transgender girls are girls, And so to frame it up in that way negates their identity completely. But if
1: somebody has socially transitioned but not medically transitioned, what's the difference?
0: So there are policies, and the policies address that. Some states say it's okay, we're we're not checking hormones, and some go by hormones. The ones that go by hormones are a lot more restrictive for young people because you have to think, like, to make that decision at a young age is... Is a lot. It's, it's not just on that person who may know truly who they are, but they need the family support. They need the insurance. They need access to appropriate medical care. Uh-huh. And there are a lot of factors that go into that. Got it.
1: Okay. And what about these laws um, that are that are potentially, or this law, I guess, in in South Dakota that could potentially criminalize um, the provision, you know, by healthcare providers of puberty blockers? Like, walk me through. Walk me through the arguments on both sides and why this is kind of like a a test case out there that everyone's kind of paying attention to.
0: Yeah, so multiple states have now come up with these House bills that want to criminalize providing gender-affirming care to transgender youth. Um, What this means is that kids are going to die. I mean, really, when I think about my own experience, I think I got to that point on that birthday where I thought I I will not – be here for another birthday if I continue to live my life like this.
1: Because of the mental health concerns.
0: And it's not mental health concerns. It's, it's existing in the world in, in total, right? Like the stresses that the world and me being who I was and how people saw me is certainly, you know, caused mental health concerns, I guess. You could right. say it that way. But, but it was more like I, I just couldn't see myself being here anymore, Right, like I couldn't see a future for myself. I didn't feel like there was a place for me, and it's been proven that providing gender affirming care for young people reduces suicidality in trans youth. Right,
1: the argument would be yeah. that that you know the minors' um, brain uh, and kind of emotional state are in flux and continue to be developing at that age, so it's too young. Like let's we need to wait. Like we can't we can't move forward with this kind of this set of procedures at this time. And we need to allow this person to mature until they, you know, have an adequate level of conviction and maturation to make that decision of sound mind. And you know, I think with sound mind.
0: None of these decisions are being made lightly. And you know, I think that's something that people need to remember is that no one is transitioning for an advantage in sport. It simply doesn't happen, right? right? right, Like what trans people have to face in the rest of their lives would never offset a gold medal or a state championship, right? People are not transitioning to gain athletic advantage. And in the case of trans youth, uh, separate from sport, these are decisions that need to be made with parents and with healthcare providers, right? There's no way for a 16-year-old to just go get puberty blockers. And Mm -hmm. so what some of these bills are doing is saying that it would be a crime for a doctor to provide gender-affirming care to a patient who wants it right. and, and, and their family, right? And their parents who have had this conversation and know that this is the best decision for them. It would make it illegal for doctors to do their jobs.
1: So if they, if they don't provide, if there's, a, if there's a minor who wants to transition mm-hmm. and really wants these puberty blockers denying that person the ability to avail themselves of that at that time would allow puberty to move forward. Right. And assuming that that young person's conviction remains true and they continue to wish to transition, it then, is, it then becomes a much more complicated procedure down the line because of, you know, the development that ensues by virtue of puberty.
0: Correct. Right. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. Right. And and we've seen you know mental health benefits for young trans people who receive gender affirming care um, for puberty blockers. So puberty blockers uh, would would happen maybe for a year or two years before cross hormone therapy, and that's as you said to to sort of delay the onset of any sort of physical changes mm-hmm. that might be associated with puberty. Um, you know, I think about what my experience would have been like as a young person if I knew who I was and was able to exist in the world fully as that person. I would have had a totally different life, and I think I, I would have, I would have bypassed a lot of the pain that I felt in high school and college and out of college when I didn't know what that what those feelings were or or have the words to put to them.
1: What are the mental health statistics with respect to trans youth? Like in terms of the incidence of depression and suicide and, you know, other kind of related mental
0: issues. Yeah, it's 41% of transgender people attempt to take their own life. 41%? 41%, and so you think about- Of transgender uh, people in general or youth? Uh, trans youth. trans sorry, youth, sorry, trans youth. And youth yeah. being what, like uh, under 21 or something like that? 23 or uh-huh. 25 probably, okay. you know, four- us to have the opportunity to provide care for someone and not to do that is putting them in a position where we're telling them that their lives are not worthy.
1: Um, And is there any validity or wisdom to the argument that, you know, minds do change? And, you know, I know like ideas that I had when I was a young person, you know, it's like, I don't know what I was thinking at that time, right, like, that's where the fear is. Is there legitimacy to that? Because, you know, it seems to me you could make, Somewhat of a cogent argument around
0: that. Yeah. And, and with the healthcare system, there are steps in place to make sure that this is a true and authentically held identity before any of this would start to happen. Mm. And so, you know, in my own case, I had to see a, a therapist for a very long time, maybe a year before I could get hormones. Uh-huh. And it was to make sure essentially really- vetting you through this whole thing. Yeah, and I think that has changed a little bit. There was a requirement that someone had like this lived experience of transition and you know those sort of requirements have have gone away. But these are decisions that people are making with their parents, with their families mm-hmm. and with their healthcare providers really talking through what the outcomes would be. Right. You know, I think the fear is like th- this is not what that's not the framework that politicians are setting this up against. What what we're seeing is this is in election year these are conservative right. candidates in conservative states yeah and, it's, and, it's not it's 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 not a mistake that this is all happening in an election year and marriage equality is no longer on the table for us to drive a wedge in between voters and mm-hmm. so this for whatever reason transgender people and specifically trans athletes has become that hot button topic
1: yeah yeah it's interesting when you look at it through through that lens and and it kind of pushes that, you know, severity and fear button by saying, you know, in criminal, you're literally criminalizing this, like there's a fine and mm-hmm. there's also the potential of going to jail for a year. So any doctor that would yep. like, you know, go through with, you know, a patient on this protocol is looking at jail time. Right, it's for doing their job. And that's, this is South Dakota, but there are similar laws like this, you know, on the- on Across country, the country, yeah. Across the
0: country, yeah. yeah. And it's wow. terrifying because what it does is it sets up people, you know, even if this law doesn't pass. And so by the time we're done recording this podcast, we'll, ha- we'll know what happened in South Dakota. Oh, wow. It's happening today. It's happening today. right now, two o'clock today. They're voting on it. Mm. And- is it two o'clock? <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry to say, Blake, <laughs> check it out. Is Blake running? Yeah. Go on the internet and find out. So, you know, when, when we find this out, what HB 1057, go even ahead. Even if this doesn't pass, The narrative around it is so incredibly dangerous because it sets us up for people to not treat trans people as people, right? It's already putting out there that the Trevor Project is a organization that handles mental health concerns and is like a hotline for LGBTQ plus youth. Mm -hmm. And they've seen a huge spike in the number of calls from South Dakota since the announcement of this bill. You know, this is impacting young people because we're telling them, like, you're not worthy. Your existence, your very existence is up for debate. Mm. Like, you can't imagine how that might yeah. feel. Yeah,
1: So So, um, how do you comport yourself as an advocate? Like, how do you think about how you um, speak about these issues? You know, the kind of language that you choose to, you know, use and and how you see yourself, like... Like, are you going to be out there, you know, on the front lines, like, you know, pounding your fist or are you trying to be somebody with open arms who's on the receiving end of these, you know, trans youth? Like, how do you, like, what's your vibe with all of it?
0: There are so many different components to it because social media is such an incredible tool, both for my advocacy, but also for my visibility Mm -hmm. and for my ability to connect with and mentor other people. And so I would say, you know, many, many trans people who have come out, who have been in sport, that we've heard stories about or read about. I have mentored in some way, reached out to them, Mm. helped them through their process. I get contacted by trans kids across the country who are trying to stay in sport, who are having issues with coaches or policies. And so I'm in this position where I get to mentor people and parents and, and provide education to colleges and universities through my speaking. you know, And then also use Twitter as a way to spread information Mm -hmm. and use Instagram as a way to spread information. And uh, part of that is simply by being visible, I can help to expand people's understanding about what it means to be trans.
1: Yeah. I mean, you must be the most visible trans athlete out there. I
0: I believe that I am. Yeah, Yeah. I think you are. And for me, it's really important to approach everything as a sort of learning opportunity. Um, You know, there's this idea of like meet people where they're at and I, I, I certainly do that, but I also want to bring them along a little bit, uh-huh. right? And so, I know that most people that I'm talking to, even if they say something that's offensive, it's not intended to be offensive in most cases. Yeah. Have I offended you at all? You have not. All right. Yeah, you have not. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I feel like
1: I, I know a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I'm also, I have a self-awareness around the level of ignorance that I have around this too. And I think Mm -hmm. most people out there kind of know a little bit and maybe they're not interested in knowing much more about that. Right. Um, And what I've noticed about you is is you have, you know, you have a lot of equanimity with people. Like you you don't get upset and, you, you know, you have an acute ability to kind of communicate and connect with people. And you do meet them where they're at in the sense that, like, you're not gonna chastise somebody because... They didn't, you know, they didn't understand that they had their phraseology off or something like that. And instead yeah. you look at it as an opportunity to kind of
0: you know, educate them a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, you don't know what you don't know. So I approach yeah. everything, you know, for, for years, yeah. I didn't know I was transgender and I'm a trans person now talking about identity, right. right? Like you don't know what you don't know. And so, but there's a responsibility when you have that awareness, when you have that education to do better and so I feel like I can go into conversations and treat people with dignity and respect and help them come to a better understanding about transgender identity mm. and what it means and, you know, some of these horrible policies that are being put out there and help move them along. And that is the way that I think that I can create social change. It's not by engaging in Twitter wars or responding to trolls mm. or, you know, and I, and I do respond to people who are against me or who Sometimes say things because I want my response, that's with love and respect, to be an example for other people. Yeah. In in do how you subtweet
1: it or do you like retweet it with with uh, adding the thing? You know, you know what I mean. There's yeah. a difference. Yeah, yeah. A like because you can respond and it goes below, or yeah. you retweet it and your response is above. I think it probably depends on what it is. Yeah. Uh,
0: but also, there's a lot of private messages that happen, yeah. and you know, I think that more than the stories, the articles, the documentaries and stuff like that, I'm really proud of my ability to communicate with other people and and help them understand who I am. And it's a very different situation when you know somebody who has that identity, right? When you you have a conversation with me and you've never talked to a trans person before, I feel like that's a moment where I can help be a good reflection of our community. And even though I am just myself and can't represent all trans people, um you know i can I can let people know like I'm a regular person, and I like you know a lot of the same things that you like, and we can find common ground and and take away some of the scariness and the the concerns that people have about mm. trans people because the way that these politicians are positioning us is is as not human, yeah,
1: yeah, we're scared of what we don't know,, right. and when it's the other, then it's easier to create a boogeyman around that, you right know, much harder. To sit across from you, getting to know you, to you know have that perspective. Yeah, you know. Um, other than the laws that we've kind of touched on, where do you see the biggest battle lines being drawn right now? Like where where is the the war being waged? What's what's the fight that needs to be fought? Is it over like the bathrooms? Is it over you know these state laws in sports, or you know even outside of sports, like wh- what is the civil rights? situation at the moment as you see
0: it. Yeah, it really is around transgender youth and around healthcare. And I think that we'll see these policies uh, at the state levels go through or not go through about preventing transgender athletes in the high school level from competing. And then we're going to see, you know, all of these, I I believe it's over a dozen of these bills Mm -hmm. about healthcare. And that is a really dangerous situation. It is a um, sort of a gateway law right to prevent trans people from existing in public you know you deny me my ability to have appropriate affirming healthcare and very bad things can happen right i mean that's
1: denying somebody's personhood i suppose on a fundamental level and and that's going to precipitate you know a domino effect of you know from mental health you know
0: of a mental health issues all the way to suicide Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I also want to be very careful of, of framing this up just around mental health. Um, certainly mental health is what will lead us to no longer existing. Right. But, but it, there's so much more than that. And I think that there is this narrative of trans people being mentally ill that people faced and, and fought for so long. You know, the mental health issues that we're facing, the whatever, you know, depression and suicidality and, and things like that are the result of not being treated like humans. Mm. And so it's that's not a, inherently- That's a very good, super
1: important point.
0: It's not inherently yeah. that because I am trans, I am susceptible to mental illness or mental health concerns. It's that the world treats us in a yeah, way- Yeah, a symptom. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, wow.
1: Is there a particular law that you would like to see passed or overturned?
0: No, I think that we need federal protections yeah. that include gender identity. Yeah. and Expanding I've, expanding like the Civil Rights Act, basically, right, is what right. you're saying. yeah. Because when we start to have these state policies, you know, we saw the domino effect here of having uh, one state put up this healthcare policy. And then, you know, within a matter of three weeks, you know, mm. the numbers are, are climbing.
1: Wow, man. Um, so we don't know, there's no uh, current out transgender person that we know of that's competing in the upcoming Olympics in Tokyo.
0: Yeah, not that I know of at this time, but mm-hmm. a lot of the trials are still coming up. The yeah. the you know, competitions that are going to sort out who actually goes. So it is possible. It is absolutely possible yeah, that this would be the year.
1: And what's the vision that you hold like 4 years, 10 years from now? Like where would you like to see the state of culture and sport? And we can kind of wrap it up with that, I think, right? Like yeah, where's yeah. where where is this going if you if you, you know, if it was up to you?
0: I think that sport is one of the most magical places for people to exist. I think that sport is a vehicle for social change and the change that happens within sports in terms of policies and acceptance and inclusion can really be a guide for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it in the past and I think that we're at a crossroads right now where how we treat inclusion in sport is going to reflect in the rest of society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I read somewhere that, that you know, you were inspired by some of the great, you know, activist athletes out there. You know, I don't know who in particular, but, you know, there's these iconic images that come to mind from, you know, Muhammad Ali to, you know, the closed, you know, gloved fist mm-hmm. on the podium at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And the ability of the athlete to you know, move culture forward and advance conversation around ideas that people are resistant to um, is a thing, you know? And I think that you're somebody who, who is on, you know, the sort of, you know, razor's edge of this in a new and broader, you know, conversation around civil rights and what that means and what kind of culture and society do we wanna be in and, and live in? And I think your advocacy is is admirable and, you know, I'm I'm in awe of your athletic talent and also um, your strength and your courage to put yourself out there, you know, you know, in harm's way, I think, in, in, in a very real way. Like you're putting yourself at peril to get this message across and, you know, that may get lost in the conversation, but I would imagine that that's a very real consideration for you as well, your safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's important work that you're doing and I wish you all the best and thank you for what you do
0: thank you you know athletes have a platform and i think that athletes have social capital not just in the united states but in mm-hmm. the world and we look at olympians differently we look at professional athletes differently we even look at high school and collegiate athletes differently and so i think it's an incredible position for me to be in to have this platform you know to have a nike sponsorship and and things like the new york times article and to be able to express to people the concerns about the realities facing transgender people, not just in sport, but in our community as a whole. Yeah. You know, I want people to, to know that they can be their authentic self and continue to play the sports that they love and continue to do their passions and not have to compromise any part of their identity, to hide any part of their identity. Because when we are authentic about who we are and when we are able to, and it's not safe for everyone to come out, but if we are able to do that, you know, your entire world opens up and it, and it not just impacts you, but it impacts the people around you. And I think that's really how social change is created, you know, is, is that ripple effect. And so, you know, my hope is that me waking up every single day and living an awesome life can be my advocacy and, you know, the, all the other parts I have to talk about are, you know, part of that, but I really just want people to see that, um, i am possible that they are possible mm. because i am possible and you know nothing is um, nothing is off limits like people can have a future um, but the future that i didn't see for myself when i was younger yeah. it exists
1: and for the for the for the person who's listening who's you know living you know a secret double life or just a, you know is afraid to come out um, what are the, you know, what is, what is the kind of message that you would like to impart to that person?
0: Yeah, there are so many factors that go into one's ability to come out and it's, you know, now with laws and policies like this about access to care and safety, uh, there are financial concerns and, and family support concerns for young people. There are, you know, very real possibilities that people will lose their house or their, you know, apartment and the housing, their, employment and things like that. And so there are so many factors that go into it that I would never tell somebody that they have to come out. You know, mm. and I think this is one of the problems that we have in professional sports is like we are looking for that out gay male athlete in the big four sports. Like when are they going to yeah. come out? There are so many factors in any LGBTQ plus person's existence of of whether or not to come out. You know, my message is, is to that person would just be that, um, that, they are valid and their identity is valid and real and that they are worthy of love and respect and, and dignity.
1: And if that person is looking you know, online for some support and resources, where can you direct those people? Other than you, of course, transathlete.com. Yeah, site, right?
0: transathlete.com uh, for young people, Glisten G-L-S-E-N is a great resource. For families, PFLAG is a great resource. And there are so many organizations that are doing work around advocating for uh, trans people in different areas of mm-hmm. life. Uh, but you know, the biggest thing that has made a difference for me is that human connection of having somebody to talk to. So I actually just opened myself up to send me a DM. Like I yeah. talk, to, you know, talk to a ton of people and what I will maybe be most proud of is not the accomplishments that I have athletically, but knowing that I've been a part of hundreds of school projects for young people, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of that I've had video chats and message exchanges with hundreds of young people. And that it's made a a real difference having just that one person reach out and say, like, I know what you're going through or, you know, you're going to be okay.
1: Yeah. All right, man. Well hit up Chris in the, in the DMS (laughs) at the Chris Mosier. Um, get your terms down by going to the glossary on transathlete.com, study up on that and uh, get your knee sorted out, right? Yep, so, you can start training again. Next step. Yep. Do you have surgery on that coming up or what are you, are you just letting
0: it heal or what's going on? Yeah, I'm exploring my options. Uh-huh. I, you know, I want to continue to be competitive, to compete at a high level and uh, not sure if that definitely means surgery or what I can do, but... Yeah. We'll get it started out. Cool.
1: Well, enjoy the rest of your time in LA. And uh, come back anytime, my man.
0: I appreciate cool. it. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Peace.
0: Namaste. Namaste.
1: So we did that. That happened. That was me and Chris. What'd you guys think? It's pretty illuminating, right? Very powerful. Thank you again to Chris for being so open, being so vulnerable. Uh, I just loved everything that he had to share and found it quite illuminating. So if Chris's story and message tugged at you, I encourage you to donate to the Trevor Project and you can visit transathlete.com to learn more ways that you can take action. You can find these links in the show notes on your podcast app or on the episode page at richroll.com and throw some love Chris's way on Instagram, at Twitter. He is at the, or the, at the Chris Mosier. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. You can share the show or your favorite episodes with your friends on social media or in person, as long as you're socially distancing in an appropriate and responsible manner. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Thank you to everybody who helped put on today's show, Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing and editing today's show, Jessica Miranda for graphics, Allie Rogers for portraits, Georgia Whaley for copywriting, DK for advertiser relationships, and theme music, as always, by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Thanks for the listen. I appreciate your attention. I'll see you back here in a couple days with who knows, who knows, people. All I can say is that it's gonna be good. Until then, be safe, take care, eat well move more, and uh, try to be grateful for the good things in life. I know it's not always easy. I struggle with this, believe me, but it's worth the effort. Peace, compliance, namaste.